Dave's Five Hot Takes, yeah! Welcome to Dave's Five Hot Takes. It's me, Dave. So excited everybody's back. Um, this is a really fun interview, and we talked a lot, so I kind of want to make this intro quick. I'll say this about Claude. He is one of my favorite people, and you can hear how giddy I am throughout the interview talking to him because I love this guy so much, and he is he is a really good friend. Um, this is the thing I want to say about Claude, and one of the things I'm always just so fascinated about him is I don't have a lot of friends who've written big, massive pop hits. And when I say pop hits, I mean like everybody from Bangladesh to Bangor, Maine knows these songs because they were just super hits. Um, and so um, I always have this special reverence for Claude because he's done that. And I think it's a really unique gift set to be able to say that. Um and it, it, yeah, just he's like a unicorn that way to me. Like I, he's he's had numerous number ones in the pop world, and I think that's such a cool thing, you know. Like to be able to to have songs that everybody in the world sort of sang at one point is such a cool thing to me. I think that's, and I think especially and finally, it's a very unique gift set. I think, um, you know, to be able to write um, songs is hard enough, but to be able to write something that sort of everybody agrees is singable and really good to me is really unique. And what, the other thing that I think is so fun about this conversation is hearing not just how Claude has done that, but what he's done since. He started a band. He's writing songs for other people still. He decided to move to Franklin, Tennessee. I mean, there's just he's a fascinating, wonderful dude, very thoughtful. Um, and so I'm excited you got cited. <laughs> I just I'm so excited. I skipped the E. I'm excited you guys get to hear this interview with one of my favorite people. And I think maybe one of the most talented people I know, too. So um, buckle up and uh, welcome Claude Kelly to Days 5 Hot Takes. So I, I want to welcome one of my dear friends. I smiled so hard when your face popped up on the screen <laughs> because I love this man so much. Uh, this is Mr. Claude Kelly. and I'm thrilled that he is on Dave's 5 Hot Takes. There's a lot of reasons that I'm thrilled you're on here, by the way. I, one, I just love you so much as a human being. Claude is just... He's just a wonderful human. But two, you, I mean, so so Claude and I got to know each other over this thing called Leadership Music here in Nashville, which was so much fun. But quickly, and one of my favorite memories was the last day that we had, you and I and Kelly, Clegg, one of our dear friends, got in trouble so much because we were the kids in the back of the room sitting wow, at the wow. same table with the class club. But, but I, I feel like there's such a simpatico with you and I on just how we feel about music, how we feel about life how we feel about our friends when we get to make music. But I think one of the things that I love, talk, I just love talking to you about anything because you have, you, you have opinions and they're always so well thought out. And so when I was thinking about this podcast, I was like, I gotta use it. <laughs> yes. But I just thought Claude would be so much fun. Cause one, you have had so, so much success in, in this in this world but you also i just love talking about anything with you but every time we get into musical discussions i always feel like i leave and i'm like god i just never thought about that stuff like this <laughs> it's always thr i'm so glad you're here doing this thank you for doing this well thank you for having me oh my gosh so, so i know i know a lot of this stuff but i think it's fun to talk about so one of the things that is really unique about you is you are one of my few friends that grew up like you grew up in the city in new york Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is like a unicorn to me. This is like people that, you know, that, that I don't know a lot of people that grew up in LA, you know, I, I, obviously, you know, we know people that grew up in Nashville, but even that's kind of 
mm-hmm. an anomaly. But I mean, you, I, I remember the first time we talked about this on the bus and one of those leadership music days. And I just felt like I wore you out with like, so what, like, tell me what it, you walk out of the building and like you're, you're seven years old and you're looking at this huge city. And I, I, cause it's, it just, I literally feel like it's talking to someone about growing up in Europe or some Paris or something, because it's, you know, I've been there a million times, but I can't imagine growing up there. Can you kind of speak to that? Like what that was like? Yeah. I, it's, it's weird because I didn't, I, you don't really know you're growing up somewhere different when you're growing up there. So right. all you know is that this is the world to you. So uh, I grew up in Manhattan. So I was, there's New York is a big state and, and New York city is big too, but yeah. I literally grew up in the city, yeah. on, in the concrete jungle, um, lower East side, Manhattan. And I guess, I guess more than anything, you grow up fast Mm. Not so much in like a tough way, like you're 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 not your age, but like you learn a lot of things about life fast because you just see everything. So a lot of things that I I I, I didn't learn that till I left to go to college. I went to Berkeley in Boston, and I, I Boston was much to me much smaller than New York. I figured Boston out like in my first weekend. Compared to like the, the like the train system, the whole like I I, I was a I'm a walker because you're in New York, you walk everywhere. So I just put on my sneakers and I'll just walk up and down. I was like, so this is the end. Of, this is where it ends. Cool. <laughs> the edge of the universe. But can I just say, isn't that fascinating? Cause that already, already just in that you, you are so different than me growing up in rural Mississippi because you, you, your brain goes, okay, here's the grid. I'm seven, eight years old, five years. Old. You know, I got to know where I am. I got to know the train to get on the goes, then that train get off here. And then you're already thinking in a way that I didn't have to think about until I don't even know if it was even in college. Like until I visited my first city. Right. And I was lost. Cause I'm like, but you it, it, just that. Here's the, here's the crazy part. So now that I've lived, I've lived in Boston. I've lived in California. I live in, Franklin, Tennessee now, and I've lived a few other places too. Um, because of that, if I'm walking, I never get lost. Because I take direction when I'm on, the, when my feet are on the ground, if I'm walking somewhere, I can go exactly back. I can reverse that and go right, right back anywhere. But driving for me, I'm, I'm a good driver and I, and I don't necessarily need like GPS, but driving for me takes so much more focus to to figure out where I am and get my bearings because in New- in Manhattan, you didn't have to drive anywhere. So all my, my entire spatial <laughs> is based off of walking. That is amazing. Uh, because everything is about, you walk two blocks up, you make a right here, you get on this train, let's you out on 72nd street. You walk two blocks down there, you cut the Avenue. So everything for me is where my legs can take me. That is incredible. So, yeah. so this is the thing too, because how much do you think growing up you and I've talked about this and I was so fascinated to hear you talk about this, but how, how did that affect you musically? Because I mean, and you were in New York, right? That season you caught right the tail end of a lot of things happening and you caught the sweet spot of a ton of things happening. Hell yeah. But I can't imagine what growing up there musically would have been like. Well, I would say that it starts with just the city itself because I grew up pretty much in the east, almost in the east village. My 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 grade school uh, was right there in the village, pretty much on Broadway, where all the action takes place. So, what affected my music was what I saw, and what I love about being from New York City at that time was that uh, is that you can't. It's pretty hard to be close-minded growing up downtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I saw everything. <laughs> 
<laughs> I heard everything. I heard every curse. I saw every religion. I saw every sexuality. I saw every race, every, every, um, every kind of immigrant, every mm. kind of everything. Um, as a kid and it's, you're on top of people. So it's, so there's this feeling of always communicating with people, even if you're not talking. So wow. you're crossing this, like, an, I'm a little bit more lonely anywhere else just because of this. Like there's this, this consensus of, of community there. Like you're standing at the stoplight at 14th street and third Avenue waiting for the light. And I don't know, some car zooms by and does something crazy. There's 10 of you there. You don't know each other. It could be a, a little lady who's a nurse. It could be um, a bunch of kids in high school. It could be me. It could be two people speak, speaking Spanish over here. Just a, but we're all collectively like, fuck you. What are you doing? <laughs> like, and so you end up having these moments together where like, you can't really hate each other because they're always like, you're all trying to rush on the train together. You're all mad at the bus driver. You're all pissed that it's snowing and, and you're on the elevator together. And you're yeah. so there's these there's these communal moments, and in that, the art comes because you because everyone's also bringing their art with them everywhere they go. So you walk down the block and you hear things blasting out of the 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 Puerto Rican bodega. So you're hearing like all kind of reggaeton immediately, and you and I'm Jamaican, so you're hearing. I was in Jamaican communities in Brooklyn. You're hearing that blasting from the corner stores and from the Jamaican bakeries, and. I was Do the, they call those Jamaicaries? Because that would be amazing. Well, you don't. That's actually a good idea for Jamaican bakery. Jamaican bakery. Remember that here. So, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Varnum Clark, Jamaicaery in Nashville, Tennessee. Dot com. Uh, dot com. Um, but then, like, I grew up in, I, I was born in 1980, and I grew mm-hmm. up in uh, uh, the village. So it was the dawn of, like, punk rock and rock and roll and grunge and hip hop and all that was happening in New York City. So I was weird because weird weirdo because everyone thought i was so eclectic but i was a musician so i soaked it all up so i was this black kid who wore doc martens because i love nirvana and green day and wore like biggie notorious big t-shirts but grew up playing classical piano and singing in, in my episcopal church um but my family was jamaican so i knew bob marley and I love No Doubt and TLC and They Might Be Giants and all kind. Of, it was just a random, random mix of things that uh, I think I, I think I would not trade my musical upbringing for the world. Mm. Well, that that's the thing I get the most jealous of. Like, I remember you and I talking about this before and I thought, man, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to grow up somewhere if you are already musically inclined and creative where you actually get a fair shot at all of it? There's not some culture or even just your sweet parents who like a certain thing. And so that's what they kind of inundate you with, Mm -hmm. with no ill will, but they're just like, this is what I like. So we're going to listen to it. But you actually, yeah, yeah, you, you actually get a shot to be like, man, I get to sort of pick my playlist. Yeah. And definitely I picked it all. (laughs) I was greedy. Uh, I mean, there's also the other other part of it is that like, it's different now there's access because we have online, but I mean, like it was like, there, there was this, there was a this huge Tower Records that was down on Broadway that was like four blocks down from my grade school. So I would save my money up. I went to this private school called Grace Church School. I mean, that's what I'm saying. My, my world was, I went to private school, but I grew up um, in between New, New York and, I mean, between Manhattan and Brooklyn. And then the village was right there. So I would save my money up in uh, this pretty much predominantly all white Christian school. And I'd walk down four blocks after school and I'd go. And at that time, artists were like, on tour performing at record stores. 
So yes. I saw everybody at Tower Records and this other store called The Wiz. Uh, that that had like that, that was like an electronic store that sold me. So I mean, it was just in. I just and then the Virgin. Remember Virgin Megastore? You had the listening stations. I would just, I would I would be in there for hours, just and going on the line. I didn't, I didn't care what it was. So I just discovered imports and death metal and and I just made and I would just buy whatever. I spent all my money on music. Yeah, all of it. So almost like growing up in the city gave gave you a chance. You had an equal opportunity approach to music because that's how the city is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the time, the time, the time, I, I, I can't speak for New York before or even after because it's just that sweet spot, like you said, the other twist was MTV. Mm. So MTV was our generation. Like, I mean, it started before. I, I mean, I'm not that young. I'm not that old. But I mean, when I when I was realizing myself as a musician was at the dawning of Michael and Prince and Whitney and Madonna. And then, of course, until like the early 90s is when I think. We, we we became the kids that determined what the hits were. We were mm. requested on radio and and made things go platinum and double platinum and ten times platinum. And that M- MTV was my MTV and BT were like my babysitters. I I had I, I remember getting I remember when we got cable and I was like okay so I'll be watching this and I everything from the music videos to the real world to road rules all that stuff because. Bec- becomes part of like we're that's me yeah so so the, one of the things that i'm slightly obsessed with um is the beginning of hip-hop like mm-hmm. and you were you would have been smack dab you you're centrally located because of how it spread out and how it started in the boroughs you're mm-hmm. kind of smack dab in the, do you have memories of that of like because i mean you know by the time you're 10 11 it's really starting to gain especially in new york it's really it's getting a foothold it's like I'm I'm biased because of that. Like I'm from New York. Um hip hip hop in New York it, they go hand in hand. It definitely started in the 70s really. Mm-hmm. But the part of hip hop that I consider myself responsible for is definitely the Bad Boy era. Like, yes. Like we were in New York, Puffy was the king. Uh it was him and Biggie and Faith and Lil Kim and Mace and 112 and Total and all that stuff. And that was New York. And then and besides that, there was like, I mean, many, many, many other Busta Rhymes and many other people from New York, but there was, we were definitely running shit. Oh my gosh. And so we, we were the, we were not only just the music, but we were the fashion. Like we, mm. I bought, I was Timberlands and baggy jeans and hoodies and long sleeve Mecca t-shirts and goggles on my head and the, the whole, the whole food, the Fuji's, all that stuff is New York, New Jersey, tri-state area stuff. So, like the theater that, the, the theater that they shot the "Killing Me Softly" video in, that, that the movie theater they're sitting in is actually um, about five blocks from where I grew up. Dang, it was right there on Twenty Third Street and like in Park Avenue. And I like, I was like, holy crap! This it was killing me. So I'm, I'm sitting there every time. I'm like, yo, this is down the street from my house. I got in trouble for sneaking out when I was like 12 or 13 to go to a TLC album release party for their second album. I, was, I thought I was, I thought I looked old enough to get in. They didn't let me in. I, I snuck out like midnight to go to some club on the West side. Cause I wanted to meet, I had a big crush on T-Boz. Oh my God. I mean, all that was just happening. It was right there in my backyard. So did you, so, so here's the question. 
uh, one, I just think it would have been, I can't imagine what would have, it would have been like to be around, especially the hip hop scene as it was starting, because it was just, it seems to me that it was so fast and furious and insanely, insanely creative. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Very. you know what I mean? And so, um, the, so, so uh, to me, I can't imagine because stuff is just popping up all the time. New guys, new MCs, new new gr- like new bands, new groups. Like, and you are just right. And what the energy for that would have been like, I can't imagine. Super. I mean, super inspiring. I feel like uh, I hear I hear that music in my head all the time, mm. and I definitely feel not like I did it by myself, but I feel like a bunch of people from that town are, I feel responsible. Yes. Especially looking back on it now because it's an era. Yeah. I'm like, man, Mary J. Blige, like notorious B.I.G. All these things were like, those were our folks. Yeah. We saw them at block parties, at performances, at clubs that like that before they became world, world renowned. So it also allowed me as a little black kid to dream Mm-hmm. it was possible i mean it's funny we're talking about um you know andre harrell he just passed away yep and he's legendary mm-hmm. um one of the very only fights i had with my mother about being in the music business was i was walking down the street with a bunch of my friends in high school this is just randomly this is to show you what new york was like and obviously i was always singing we're always just doing stuff in choirs and all stuff so i was singing and andre harrell heard us 57th street near columbus circle and he stopped us. He was like, yo, what are, you, what are y'all doing? Like, we're singers. We're in school. And he's like, sing something. I, I, we sang, I don't know what we sang. I think it was like a boys to men song or something, something random like that. And he was like, yo, y'all are dope. And he gave all of us his business. <gasps> and I just knew that was my big break. I was going, this is it. Okay. I was going to, this is it. I'm like 14. This is how it's going to happen. I'm going to be like, this is this. And at that time, like kid stars were like, it was Usher and Brandy or something like that. This is it. This is it. Go home to my mom. Like mom, Andre Harrell, he's the biggest. He discovered Joe to see him here. Blige. And he gave me a card. And she was like, nope. She's like, you have to finish school first. No. Huge. I was like, you don't understand me. Yeah. I, I thought I was like, like, you know, you know how Lauren Hill was in Sister Act 2. I'm like, I just want to go to the competition. You know, let me go. Uh, and 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 I had a whole hissy fit about it. And she let me have my moment, whatever. Definitely, definitely never let me call him. And I, I got to understood afterwards after what. But the point of the story is that, like, that's what New York was like. Like, you could be singing on the train. And next thing you know, I mean, and, and two, yeah, that, and I think that's what fascinates me. You, you just nailed it. Is it you're in the epicenter, especially of that culture, yeah. where there is it's having so much success that Andre Harrell can genuinely, genuinely hear a kid on the yeah. street and his friends and be like, "Hey, come by the come by the spot tomorrow and let's yeah, let's record something." Chances are, you might have found a star. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, so 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 here's the question. So so back up a little bit when do you like when is the moment in your life you're like i want to be in music when is that moment before i could talk what supposedly rumor has it that (laughs) i (laughs) word on the street is that i was singing before i could talk so my mom played music um, when she was pregnant and all, and when I was a baby, and a lot of Bob Marley. Bob Marley is my first memory of music, 
And apparently she dropped me off somewhere when she went to work. And and apparently I was singing No Woman, No Cry. Like I was like mumbling, doing my best to mumble that song before I could even say words. So I was always addicted to music. I'm one of the only people in my family that are musical. So it wasn't like there was this tradition. Um, We were church going, so music's in church. Um, But I started taking piano, classical piano lessons at two and a half. What? Yeah, like at this Third Street Music School in Manhattan. And literally, I, I had to sit on a stack, like three or four stacks of old school phone books. Remember the phone book? Dude. To, to reach the piano, because I was so small. And I'd play, I did the Suzuki method. I'd play little minuets and s- sonatas. And like, like this, this little thing is like twinkle, twinkle, little star to start. And then um, when I got to grade school is when I kind of started getting obsessed with pop and R&B music and everything else. And in my in my grade school yearbook, which I still have, um, you know, they say they push your predictions are the predictions for my grade school yearbook was that I get a job at LaFace Records. No. Yeah. So it was that. I mean, you were that. I, you were, I was like, yo, TLC and Usher, and you have no idea. Like, this is it. And this is happening in Atlanta. This is crazy. And all my friends knew that I was this guy that loved music and I was singing. I was always a performer. So they were like, you're going to get you're going to work in the music business. I didn't know how. But I knew that I was going to get to. I saw I was talking about apparently when like sixth grade. That so 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 one, that one I love these stories because I feel like that's so rare. Like everybody I've interviewed for this podcast so far, we talk about how they got into it, and most of it, like me, is like you know either late high school, early college. Yeah. It's so rarely something where it's like ten year old whoever is like, yes, I'm I'm in. I just. But knowing you, it makes so much sense. It's kind of weird because it's a blessing and a curse because New York is every option possible. And so my problem was that I loved it all. And not to be arrogant, but I was good at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to focus on the one that's going to help you get through the door. So the reason why, speaking of New York City again, the reason why I had such a clear vision that I'd be doing music is because New York City is a music city. So uh, like... One of my early memories of the music business were uh, I had a notebook that had um, that just took notes on music business stuff. So I get whatever tapes, I guess, or CDs or whichever one at a time. And I read all the liner notes, but not just the liner notes. I wrote down like who was mixing the record, what record label they were at. And all the addresses were in New York City because the labels were in New York City. So on Saturdays, I'd get dressed up as cool as I thought I could no. be. And me and my cousin, and we buy a Metro card or a token or whatever it was at the time. And I couldn't do anything. I didn't even have a demo. I would just get in, get on the bus, the train, and just go to the places. Like, I remember going to 57th Street to Sony and standing outside and being like, I'm going to get there one day. But here's my dumb, here's my, here's my dumb, here's my dumb idea, though. In my mind, record labels did every, housed everything. So in my mind, I'm like, Michael Jackson's probably up there right now doing a video. Like, in my mind, he lived there. He recorded there. He shot his videos there. He, had, he did all his interviews there. Michael Jackson was in that building. Yeah. And I was like, how come there's not more people out here? Like, Michael Jackson's up there right now. Like, what's going on? Like, he's up there probably recording his album. And, and one day, and one time, at one Saturday, I went in. It was, I think, where LaFace was and wherever that was. And I saw, like, all the, uh, you know how labels have all the photos of the artists on the wall? It was like TLC. Yeah. And I pick up the inter-office phone. I don't know who the hell I was looking for. And as far as the security, he's like, I'm like, hi, I'm Claude Kelly, and I'm here in the building, and I'd love to talk to whoever, L.A. Reid or whatever. 
And he's like, kid, you have to get the hell out of the building right now. I'm calling the cops. And so we ran like hell. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I grew up doing. So right there. But then that for that reason, I, I love I loved the business. I loved artistry. I loved music videos, the whole nine yards, everything but songwriting. I didn't even think about songwriting. See, that's the thing about your story, the story that's so fascinating because it makes sense now with you. I mean, I, you're such a good singer and it makes so much sense with Lewis Short because now you're singing, you know, professionally. But, you know, your first chunk of your music career is songwriting mm-hmm. and you're not you haven't said anything about songwriting so far. I didn't even things have changed. So that's not necessarily me as much as I feel like if you're from Nashville, it's totally different because country has always been this. But they don't. The music business, both in schools, in conservatories, in college, in churches, anywhere you go, no one really promotes songwriting as a career, Mm. except for in Nashville. Mm. And maybe like in the film industry, if you're scoring, no one says like, you can write songs for other people for a living and publishing is a good business for you. And that's a career path to take. Either you're an artist that writes songs for yourself um, or you're in the business, you're managing, or you're playing in the band, or you're singing yourself. So I didn't even think of it as a possibility. And even though I knew of song, like I knew of David Foster and Babyface and lots of other songwriters that I adore, but even still, I didn't, it didn't correlate that that was something that you could pursue. And also, to be fair, most music colleges don't, didn't offer uh, pop mainstream songwriting or the music business when I was applying to college as a degree. That's the reason I went to Berkeley was that it was one of very few colleges that offered a music business degree. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be in the business. Mm. So I only looked at the colleges that had this new revolutionary music business degree. It was there in in NYU and the University of Miami. And I didn't want to stay in New York because I was from New York. So I ended up going to Boston and it wasn't until I was in my last year of, of Berkeley that I started writing by accident. Cause of my friends, we were all graduating. They wanted to do demos. And I was like, well, I'll help you. I'll manage you. Mm. I was the manager and I would take them around to, stu- and I can't I'd, like, come to New York. I know musicians in New York. Um, Cause I'm from New York and I'd sit in the studio and I'd kind of like listen to these songs. And sometimes they'd be good, but oftentimes like the ideas would be in my head. I'm like, this would be so much better if they did it this way and said this, mm. And eventually it got to the point where I couldn't hold it anymore. <laughs> and I was like, listen, if you just say this line and rhyme it with this and switch it with this and go to the bridge right here, all will be well. It's clear as day. And they were like, why come in and demo it? And that's how I started songwriting. And then I, then the bug hit. And then it's, it was like, I would, didn't leave. I always had a, a dictaphone or a pen. I was just, the songs just started flowing. 21 Isn't years- it? See, okay, so this is what I love about, this is one of the things I love about music. You had this insane gift in your body. Like you got this thing in you, you know, and that, but you didn't know about it. No. You're like, I love music, which I think some of that is it's echoing, you know, music come in and it's reverberating in that gift set. Mm-hmm. So that's, but you don't know it. You just know, like, I just love music. I got to figure out how to get into music. Like I play piano, I sing. Yeah. But then at 21, and I love the way you said that you're sitting with friends and something in you is like, that ain't right. Like it, it almost, like it almost, it happened despite myself. I was always like, just sitting, just shut up. Like, and I knew I could sing, but I never felt like I was a good enough singer to be an artist. Wow. Um, because I have such a utmost respect for music. 
all my decisions have been about ever and with music to this day have been about not fucking up what I think is the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. So like I would rather bow like if, if rather than be greedy and say like co-write with you because I can, if I knew you had a co-writer that was you and that person worked brilliant together, I'd rather not like if I, if I heard that Tony Braxton was in the studio with Babyface, then I'd be like, are you, I would rather not interfere. I feel the same way. I respect music too much to just be in there because I'm there for the check or there because I can say I was there. So my feeling was this thing that's been giving me so much joy in my whole life is sacred to me. So although I can carry a tune, is how I felt at the time, um, that's not enough of an excuse to just say it's all about me and I'm the artist. And the same thing for songs I hear, I'm like, yeah, just because you have a, a knack for this doesn't mean that you have the right to create poetry. So I was very careful about getting in the door until I was confident that not what I'm saying makes the art better. Until you just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> You're like, this is terrible. I'm sorry, but it's I it out. And, and literally from that point on, it's been like diarrhea of, of the mouth. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, I laugh because that's sort of similar to my story because I was a drummer growing up and then I was in a band in high school, this little fun little band of high school guys. And, and it's, I haven't really actually thought about this as succinctly as we're talking about right now, but I would be in the room and they'd be working on something. And I just, it's the same thing. I'd be like, I gotta say, don't do that there. What chord did you play? Do that earlier. It's, it's, it's not, it's not, I mean, I went, I went to school and for music, but it's not a technique thing. It's a feeling. And there's a thing about like, it's almost personally like, like, don't you hear that that those two do not go together? It's a jigsaw puzzle. I'm like, you cannot fit those two together. It goes this way. Harmony. And it's just something in you. And I remember, you know, because I, I went to school to be a drummer. That was my thing. Like I went to MTSU because I was going to play drums. And I'll never forget. I came to MTSU and I, and I majored in music percussion. Mm. And right when I left, this band hired like the best drummer in, in Knoxville. And mm. I was so like, because I'm thinking like, y'all go get somebody new. You know what I'm saying? I'm out. You know what I mean? Good luck with the band staying together. And I remember my one of my best friends was the bass player. And he called like, dude, you won't believe this. We hired you know, it's got Tim. And I was like, wait, you guys hired Tim? And they're like, oh, dude, we're, we're rehearsing his house. He's crushing it. And I was like, uh, I was so sad because I was like, you didn't just get a new guy. You got the best guy. But I remember going back, Tim was like ten, a decade older than the rest of us. And he told me, because like I'd help write some song. It was literally, to your point, it was just inertia. Yeah, I could yeah. not do it. Because, it, because the guitar player called me back, hey man, I got this thing. Would you just help me put some lyrics? I'm like, I, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing, but then I'd give him a whole sheet of lyrics. Mm -hmm. He's like, perfect, that's all I needed. And we'd sit and he'd be like, what's the melody? I don't know, what about this melody? But I'm thinking, I don't, I'm just a drummer, man. It's probably like you, you're like, I'm the manager of the band. I'm not trying to write songs. I'm, just here, to, I'm here for moral support. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And I, but I'll never forget the drummer was the first dude to call it. He, we, I went back because they had a big CD release show and I'd written a bunch of songs with bands. He's like, why don't you come back and just like play some percussion and, you know, see the show? And we sat before the show and he's like, man, I think you have a real gift for the songwriting thing, man. And I was so offended because I was like, another drummer, are you? another drummer is looking at me and being like, dude, I know you want to be a drummer, but, and he was a really good drummer too. So I was kind of heartbroken because I was like, oh my God, this really, and he was like, listen, you're a great drummer, but like, man, you are good at the songwriting thing. And I was like, I'm not a songwriter, I'm a drummer. <laughs> I get it. I'm like, I'm like, this is not this, but, it, but that's, 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 that's the music industry's fault. I, and I still think they were fighting this battle to this day is that 
we haven't sexified songwriting mm. that producers and drummers and guitar players and keyboard players and dancers even um, and A&Rs and label heads have made it something sexy. Um, it's still the dirty little secret where uh, I guess maybe in the 70s, singer songwriters in the 70s were popular. So if you could play it yourself on guitar and be heartfelt or on piano, you get that's how you get Tapestry and James yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which I love. But the idea that you could have this job where you could move to a city and sell your songs for a living. Besides Nashville, um, it wasn't until I kind of graduated from Berkeley that I understood that I had to make a living and that my songwriting would be my ticket. Not even at Berkeley, even through the songwriting majors, I feel like if I take this lane, I can then go to LA and do that. It was just like, well, if you're not an artist, then you might as well just figure out some administrative job to do. <laughs> so tell me this before you jump into the five hot takes. One more question. Yeah. So obviously you, <laughs> this literally makes me laugh thinking about it. Cause I'm like, <laughs> you didn't do it at all. And then you, you're, you have had and are having so much success with songwriters. So it's just great. My brain like splits in half from confusion over like, <laughs> how do you not know this? Then you've, you know, but, but what is the moment for you? You know, you said 21, you said, but, but do you remember like the first time a song you helped with a song, you wrote a song and you thought like, Oh wow. Like that's, that's, that's good. I may have something here. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I did a lot of years of demoing. So the singing and the songwriting came together at the same time. When I first started songwriting, I would work with other people. And I wasn't feeling like the feeling again was of what I was trying to get forth was coming through. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to teach. I'm going to demo all my own songs. Mm. So I realized that by myself first, because I would write the song on the spot. I never, I, I stopped using pen and paper early because it was slowing me down. So I'd get behind the mic. People would send me tracks and I would get behind the mic and I would just black, make the room black so I couldn't see myself. So I couldn't be in my own ego. And I'd be like, okay, like what's Brittany saying here? And, I'd, mm -hmm. and I, would, I, would, I would practice imitating everybody down to their inflections, their ad-libs, the keys. So I, my voice built by demoing songs for Tony Braxton and Whitney Houston and Joe and Kelly Clarkson. I mean, whoever was pink, whatever it was. And I do it in their key. Dang. Yeah. Cause I was like, I'm going to send to them. And my thing was, I didn't have a publishing deal. I no one knew who I was. So I had my, my, in my mind, I was like, they have to hear this. If they don't know me and there's no one vouching for me. They need to press, press play. It needs to sound so much like them that they can't say no. But the trick was also to make it sound so much like them that it, that they felt the need to do it, but not so good. And so much like them that they felt like I was imitating them and they were like, this is corny because you're just trying to be me. So I would purposely under sing, but sing enough to make Brittany feel like, okay, I can see myself and I can do this a little better. And just so, to speak no, to the no, success. No, no, no one ever knew how well I could sing. Everyone, know, everyone in the business that knows me knows I can sing, but no one really knows what I'm capable of because I was always giving what needed to be given to sell it to said person. Because people, and if you're listening to this and, and you don't know this, that, that is one of the hardest things about being a songwriter is you never want to present a song to an artist in a way that they hear it. And this is very common, that they hear it and they go, I can't do that. Listen to this guy or girl exactly. sing. Especially with like soulful stuff, like with runs. Like I can do all that stuff. Um, I don't necessarily love it all the time, but even if it's an artist that does all those things, you don't want to do it to a point where they're like, uh, this is, this feels like 
like a Rubik's cube. Yeah. <laughs> they they, 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 they want to feel, you want to hear it and hear like, oh, you did a little something. I'll never, when I recorded with Whitney Houston, I did songs on her last album and I demoed those songs and I sang in her key and I did things, little inflections that are Whitney. And I remember she stuck her head with it. She was like, oh, you're doing me. You do, you, you do it like it was joke. Like, oh, you're doing, you're doing what you want me to do, but you're doing me. I like that. Cool, cool. And I was like, yes, like, you get it. like <laughs> you're just stroking your beard. I'm like, <laughs> ah, 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 ah. So, but, okay, I lied. One more, one more question. So, answer the question real fast because I didn't even answer the question. Oh, yeah, I demoed a lot of songs. I'll never forget the first time. When the song never came out. It was a song I did and I, I'm, when I finally met Akon and he heard it. And when he was like, this is hot, I'm going to cut it. And I, that was the first time I really felt, I was like, okay, my songs are worth what I think they're worth because artists that are signed see them as something that they would cut for their album. And then I was just like, you can't tell me nothing now. Like, let's go. And we, and we, it started a beautiful relationship with Akon. He's, he's one of my early mentors and one of my early kind of like teachers in this business. We did a, uh, Whitney and Michael Jackson together and his album and J-Lo, is, all kind of stuff. Isn't that crazy to think back to you standing in front of Sony? As a kid, I know, and then end up working with Michael Jackson and all these people. In the end, it's I, I I should think I should think about it and be grateful more often because those those stories make me realize that I have I'm, I'm not ungrateful, but that this has been a crazy journey. Isn't it nuts? So 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 this is really the last question. We start the five hot takes. Last five questions. What? Yeah, last five questions. What what is it like in that in that season where you're going from? you know, writing these songs by yourself, you send them around to now you're in the rooms with these artists. I mean, that's gotta be a pretty massive head shift because you know, you got these people. I mean, you just told a story where Whitney Houston is sticking her head out of a vocal booth <laughs> talking to you. Um, it's a whole different skill. That's that a great way. Master. Um, writing a song is 100% difficult and you know this all by itself and if you have nothing else to do with the process if you could if you say I wrote a great song and it got cut and someone cut it and it got handled then I bow down to you because that's very 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 hard but then working with artists is maybe harder <laughs> not, not, not because I've had I've had great experiences but working in the studio is actually not recording it's actually therapy so your goal is to Dang. find out how this person is doing, not artist, not celebrity, not great singer, greatest singer of all time, but there's this man or woman or group in your room. And you know that your job is to be so selfless that even if you can sing better than them, that um, they feel confident enough to be not what they have already done, but their best self. Mm. You have to consider them enough so they feel like they're a part of the process of so the song is theirs and not just you telling them what to do. Um, you have to allow themselves to discover some of it in the process so that they also have a spiritual experience with the song. And that's always been my little trick is that rather than just do a great song for someone, find a, I've always tried to find ways that it's personal for them. It doesn't involve where they're from, what they're going through in their life, how they talk, their accent, their their point of view. Because then what you have, if you have that, is a song and an artist that had a great experience. So, and that was my that was my uh, strategy for always getting songs cut. Was that labels 
traditionally are finicky with everyone because they're labels and they can discard you easily. But it's pretty hard to fight off a songwriter and an artist who is fighting for the song because it was the best studio damn studio session they ever had and you got the best folk out of them ever. And it speaks to this relationship or this moment in their life that they've been dying to get therapy for. And you sold them the vision of how it can be on stage and how it can be the opening of their show or how it can be the closing number or, or it's possibly the title of their title of their album. I've always that's always been in my like I, I call the song Whitney Houston like I never left because I thought that should have been the name of her album. Mm. She had been away for like nine years and ended up being I look to you it all worked. But it could have easily been that because I, I, my thing was let's not talk about it. It's Whitney Houston. So even though it's a love song, the title, all that was built into my psychology of where she was at, what the critics had said, how much she'd already done, not repeating myself with her. So it's harder because it's a lot more of a, an emotional job. Well, look at Britney and, and Circus. That my same thing. I, I it was a lot more thought into um, what would trigger her to want to cut this. That wasn't drenched in her pain and, and, the, and, and the scandal of the time. Like it was it was resilient. It was if I were her and the whole world had counted me out, but I was fucking Britney Spears. I'd be like. All eyes on me, all eyes on me, and I run this. I'm the, you guys come to see me. And so I, my, my brain was like, if, if I were in her shoes and some new songwriter that I didn't have to work with came in, he better give me something that's speaking to how I want to feel and how, what I want to say to the world, not just another version of Oops, I Did It Again. This is, and, and I can't, I mean, this is, you're, you're so brilliant, but I, I think this, if you're listening, this is a masterclass in <laughs> professional songwriting. It really is. I mean, I think, Claude, that's one of your... I'm plugging my computer. Because in. I think it's one thing, you, you just said this, you can show up in a room and write some songs. I mean, and, and you can get them cut and you can have a lot of success doing that. But I think there's this whole other level where it becomes something that you can really which you've done so well in your career is like, I'm not just writing. I'm trying to understand who I'm writing for, yeah. what motivates them. And then I'm trying to sell them a vision. That's not just, I sat in a room with my keys and piano and, and my guitar and wrote a track. And I thought this title was cool. And I sent it to him. You, you're really doing this work. I went to a Madonna concert when I was, mm. a kid, and it was one of the worst concerts I ever went to. Not because of Madonna or the or anything she did. She didn't do any of the songs. I think it might have been like around Ray of Light. And she didn't do any of her old catalog. Mm. And then I was so disappointed because I loved I wanted to hear Open My Heart and all these other songs that were I grew up listening to. And then afterwards she was on MTV, like MTV Kid, and she was saying like she that wasn't where she was and she didn't she she hated the production at the time and they they had forced her to do it and some of the more terrible experiences for her. And I remember, again, before I even know I was going to be a songwriter, I remember making this mental note even before. I was like, if I ever get to work with people like that, um, mental note, make sure that you try to create an experience mm. that's also as good as the song. Yeah. That's, that's what happens. If they don't love you or they don't love the experience or they felt forced, then when you have an artist that has that many hits, they're going to cut the ones that, that, that bring them bad memories. Yeah. Mary J. Blige doesn't sing Be Without You. Because it was about her husband, her now ex-husband. Oh, dang. I mean, that's that you couldn't help that. But what I'm saying is it's an example of like she has so many hits that you might not miss it. But the song gets cut because it's attached to a bad thing. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things I read this article um, with Will Jennings, who's a really famous lyricist, and he wrote 
like the lyrics to my heart will go on. But what, what he had this really amazing run in the eighties and nineties. And one of them was with Eric Clapton and tears in heaven, but also with Steve Winwood. He wrote like back in the high life and roll with it. And, back in the high uh, listen. I mean, dude, two next week, folks. I mean, dude, he talks about though, and this is, I think every song, I would imagine a lot of songwriters be jealous of this, but he talks about when they wrote that record in particular together, he and Stevie, wrote or Steve wrote a bunch of that record together and you know Will's an American guy Steve is obviously English and he said um Steve was like hey I want to write some songs and Will said look here's the deal I love that but this is what I want to do I want to come to England I want to go to the, I want to live in the Cotswolds for a couple of weeks with you and, and your fam at your spot out you know I don't know if he stayed with him or stayed some up but he said for I think it was two weeks they would meet up in the morning they get tea coffee they go on walks and on his farm and they just talked and, and Will would kind of take little notes and he'd pull out his little pad and make, and they had lunch together. They would hang. And he said, finally, and Steve'd be like, we should write that. He's like, no, man, let's just, come on, let's just, I'll meet you tomorrow morning. We'll do this again. And they spent all this time together. And he said, at the end of it, they sat down to start writing. And Will was like, all right, here's what I collected. You know, you've yeah. talked a lot about this. You've talked about this. You talked yeah. about, you don't want to do this. You talk about, and they wrote these songs together mm-hmm. and, and will in this article is like, you know, I can't, it, people don't do this much anymore, but he talks about like, he did that with Rodney Crowell, all these artists that he would write with. He'd be like, I want to hear what's going on with you. Like, tell my, me about you. My first question is what's going on. How are you? Yeah. So how are you feeling? What's going on in your life? And and that leads, I mean, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis did that with Janet Jackson. She talks about that a lot when they first got together for control. She went to Minneapolis to work with them, and it was just like two weeks. And um, she's like, "When are we gonna record?" And they're like, "No, we're just hanging out and going to movies and hearing where her head was at." And most of my songs, if I can be in the studio with the artist first, they don't realize that they're writing it for me because they're talking to me, and I'm, I'm like, I'm making, I'm taking notes about. I'm like, ah, so uh, happy or or you're unsatisfied, or whatever they're talking about becomes. When we did when Chuck and I, Chuck Harmy and I did Bittersweet for Fantasia. She had a fan, she had a conversation with us weeks before about literally that scenario, and she was just like, "I just feel like I'm torn in between, and I don't really know." And this, I, yeah, I love him, but I, but it's 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 hurting me. And I was like, "Cool." Because <laughs> then you also know, but then you also know if you have a great singer as well, then you know you're gonna get the best vocal performance ever, because then you can say like, "Hey, you know what this is about," and this is your chance to not only get it out of your system, but win by getting out of your system. So let it out, and it becomes therapy. Yeah. So it's a lot more, a lot more talking and we order food and we, we, we get comfortable. Cause I know once you're comfortable, it won't take long. That's right. That's right. God, that's so good. Okay. Let's do it. Let's, let's dive into these things. Five hot takes. What, which, what's the first hot take? Claude, talk to me. Hot take one. Oh God. I saw, I, I, I planned like a couple, but I didn't want to give too many. Cause I wanted to see off, off, off the dome. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer my watch. Well, I want you to answer this too. So okay. my theory is that every musician has um, a mental jukebox of like five songs that don't make any sense. That just are always in your head. Like there's songs that I sing every day for no reason. Yeah. So my hot take is that Freak Like Me by Dina Howard And you know the song well. <laughs> That's 
I, I sing that song every day and I'm not sure why. Like some, some at some point in the day, in the shower, at the studio, or driving the studio, like making my bed, I'm just like, I could be everything through the day. Um, <laughs> for no reason. That one, Before You Walk Out of My Life by Monica. Oh, oh my god. I'm always like, we are based to fade. No reason. Just just because. Just because. By your side, by Sade. <sighs> Every day. This is amazing. So my hot take is that my my theory, my hot take and my theory is that every musician has five songs and we probably don't admit them because some of them are super embarrassing, but um, has about five to 10 songs in their head that they play daily. Do you I think- I one is Baby Shark. Oh yeah, dude, that's- Do you think it's because there's like some code in each of our brains that those are skeleton key? Those, those five songs for some reason fit the exact Tetris in our brain. They must. For the, there's some melody in some song that you just go, oh, that just I can push that right in there. It is and locked it, into something, and and it's so subconscious that like I catch myself having to do and laugh because I'm like, you realize you're singing "Freak Like Me" by Adina Howard right now in the grocery store. You know that, right? And there's no reason why I'm doing it. And some girl is like down the aisle smiling, winking I'm at like, you, like, no, no, no. On the line, I got a little freakiness inside. No reason. It just. <laughs> Here we are. Look, I'm doing it right now. Here we are face to face with the memories oh, that can be erased. Monica. Monica. Dude, I, you know, John McLaughlin, my dear friend, was on, and, you know, his is a. Don't get around much anymore. He, he, dude, he, he lives across the street and he will be over. And, and like, we see them almost every day, he and his family, and I will hear him do it. He'll be cleaning the dishes. And I'm like, dude, it is just in yeah, there. I, I love that, though, because I would love a playlist. Maybe you can do it. I would love a playlist of all of these genius people like yourself with that one song, no matter how embarrassing it is, that rotates in your brain. Because it's nothing that's, it's nothing that's fancy or like, it's never like Beethoven. It's always just like... Don't get around much anymore, or Adina. Who let the dogs out? All right, it's just something because I don't know why, but that's that's my that's one of my. So 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 here's the funny thing about me. I don't. I would really have to think about this because John will drive me because he'd be like, "Dude, you know you got one." Mine. This is weird. Mine are grooves. That's cool. Because I think growing up drum, like I'll find myself just some shuffle. Yeah, it's just like, you're out here. Everybody. Everybody. Or, or. Uh, I mean, there's. Yeah, man. You know, but, but it'll be a groove because I'll find myself, my jaw, I do this weird thing with my teeth. Yes. You know, so it won't be a song, though, because you think, oh, you go straight in the way you make me feel, or everybody wants to rule the world, or whatever. But I'm like, I'll just sit on a groove in my head for an hour. Right, it'll just be on loop. See, for me, because I started playing classical piano first, I just do this. I'm always playing scales. Like, I'm yeah. playing songs from my childhood that I actually can't play anymore, but my fingers don't know what to do. Um, so that, there's something to that, too. But there's something about that groove or that song that's trapped in your head. I can't believe it's a freak like me. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I love about that? Is it kind of speaks to how subject we are to our whims. Like, you can't, because you'd love to be able to go in your brain and program what song. Oh, like, no, don't do that one. If you asked me, 
I was trying to think of something a lot more respectable to tell you. <laughs> I'll be like, well, clearly the whole What's Growing On album by Marvin Gaye. That's what I yeah, was. Yeah, that's what I was. Not quite. It's Adina Howard. Oh my gosh. I, that makes me want to ask people because you got to think that most, I, I'm so embarrassed. I don't, I, I wish that could be like, oh dude, I've got, but I don't. I, I, I think about it because it'll happen one of these random days and you'll be like, oh my God, I'm God, singing. There it is. I'm singing. Yeah. yeah, it's. Whatever that is, yeah. You know what's in my brain right now is, uh, no, I really love you one, that Chicago song. Um, that, I, you know, I'll have like a two second loop. I just watched the David Foster documentary last night. Dude, I heard about that. It's in there. Is it good? <sighs> so good. He wrote, he produced so many good songs, including all those Chicago songs. People, dude, I tell you what people sleep on him with is freaking uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Damn right. Oh. Come on, man. Dude, that's when it, so Lucy Silvis came on, and Lucy was talking about how one of her uh, hot takes was on key changes and how. Um, oh, what's the song? She references a song that does like nine key changes at the end. It's you know hard. what I mean? Where oh, uh, 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 uh. It, that's one. But but then we talked about Beyonce with uh, you know, love on top. Yeah, love on top. But but this was one of those. Oh, there's oh maybe it's like an Abba song. It's one of these songs where they just keep they keep 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 mm-hmm. keep 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 keep. But that one is one of those. I sh- I forgot about that during the. Uh. So okay, so so another question for you. So many of your, so many of your songs, so many of your songs are sung by singers, mm-hmm. like not, not artists, but like singers. you, you, your, your pedigree is pretty intimidating and impressive for how many people, you, you know, you, you've kind of built this career having songs that are sung by singers. I mean, Jesse J, Christina Aguilera, Whitney Carmen, Michael Jackson, Tori Kelly, Adam Lee. I mean, talk to me about that. Why is that the case? I love singers. I, I love, I love, I mean, I love, I love really good singers, but it's not just really good singers because I actually don't love perfect singers. Mm. There's this little sweet spot of like, you have the technique, but there's a rawness to your tone or right when you think that the voice is about to, can't go anymore, it breaks above that. That's my favorite kind of singer. That's the reason why I prefer Whitney to Mariah um, and a few other examples like that. So what really gets me excited is to hear a great singer at their best, mm. especially I actually really, really, I really love the female voice. I love women singers the most. Um, it's just magic. It's just mm. when um, the right song on the right woman is magic. It's, what is that about your skill set that can do that? You know what I mean? Like, well, I think a part of it is 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 I'm it's not it's more than the songwriting as I've mastered the art of being selfless when songwriting. Mm. So I, I would say that I probably the master that I learned from probably Babyface mm. writes songs for women really really well. But I'm very good at forgetting who I am, which are the things that keep you from writing um, from the best I guess feminine perspective. Um, when you're in the booth, so I can. That's why I turn the lights out. Like I said, when I I, I don't want to see myself because if I see my hands or I know I, if I can feel my beard and all this stuff, there I'm like I can't really imagine that I'm Tony Braxton because I know she doesn't have a beard and big hands. Yeah, not anymore. Well, not anymore. Not 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 since not, not since the transformation. But but um, I've always 
I've always been able to, I, I never approach songs from like, I'm Claude Kelly, I, I'm, I'm hot. Here's what, here's what I'm telling you to say. Mm. It's been like, I am Tony Braxton. What would mm. Tony Braxton say? Mm. And all songs are the same. Like I love you song is not, they're all kind of similar, but it's like, but how would, how would she float over the notes? What words, what words and phrases that make Tony Braxton sound good? Mm. And I love, I love getting the, the, find those little sweet spots where like you nail that, where it's like, that's the right melody and the right key with the right words, with her kind of accent and her kind of diction and her kind of ad libs. When it all flows, it's mastery. You know, can, and, and, and I just want to, I want to say this really quickly. Can we just talk about Tori Kelly for a second? Incredible. That I, I'm kind of, like I have sort of like a musical crush on her. <laughs> like um, she, she is that. Uh, I want to do a hot take on this on on one of the podcasts. I don't. I think she may be like one of the best singers alive right now. And 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 I don't qualify that by just ability, right? But her ability to communicate while she is so her her just ability to sing is otherworldly. I mean, and this is going to be a random pull, but it. If you've listened to Sing, the soundtrack, mm -hmm. she does Don't You Worry About a Thing by Stevie. And what she does vocally in that, first of all, whoever vocally produced that needs to be given a freaking. It might be her by herself. It may be her. Yeah. But if you just listen to that, she is, it is unbelievable what she can do. I would agree with you, but I would also challenge that by saying. Right, here we go. Here we go. This is what I want. Knowing Tori. And I'm not ashamed to say this. She might not like this, but in my opinion, Tori's still only giving like, jeez, forty percent of what I think Victoria Kelly, <laughs> Vicky, Vicky Kelly can can do. And that's not and that's not a diss on what she's doing because I'm a part of some of that stuff and I'm proud. And she, you're, everything you're saying is true, but. There's so much more passion. God, I and don't know how. That's this is what I mean by breaking past the fact that you can sing and going into like that reckless abandon of vocal mm. that makes you like literally like Tori has the kind of voice that can make people pass out like they did at Michael Jackson's concert. Mm. And it's, it's, it's an experience thing. It's not, it's, it's, it's no, there's no diss that, but like once you start to get more confident, tap into it where she could literally set, leave everyone on the floor. If she if if she wanted to, she already does that. Everyone has that much power in their in their gift. It's 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 um. I mean, and you know this one because you can sing. But I mean, I even think about you know getting it right with Carrie on her Underwood on the last record and being in the room. She's the same when thing. She, she's when she's a singer, like when she's singing the vocal. And I remember thinking I got goosebumps. Mm -hmm. And I remember this happened like two or three times, and I just was like. That's another thing, man. That's like, I know people that can sing. I have dear friends who blow them. But sitting in the room with someone who God has just been like, boink, and they can Kelly do Clarkson that. Like that. Kelly Clarkson can wail. Dang. Kelly Clarkson, uh, Fantasia, uh, Tamia, Lettucey, Jesse J can oh. wail. Dang. Jesse J is one of the best singers in the business by far. Mm-hmm. And I, and I mean that because she can technically do it, but live is another is, is a whole other level. Like 
she the pipes on her on that little lady it just hits the back wall mm. of stadium. i've seen her in stadiums and theaters and small rooms and she gives her entire soul to her music mm-hmm. she's an amazing singer golly um all right what's hot take two talk to me hot take two hot take two is and i would have put this song on my in my mental jukebox but it needs more just more explaining the song rain by swv you know it come on man i mean swv is my childhood okay so same and i'm, I'm a I, sidebar i have a girl band as you know the shindellas mm-hmm. and Partly because I was so in love with groups like SWV, they've actually they've actually kind of met and co-signed the Shindellas, which makes me on my heart just explode. Oh. That that Coco, Lily, and Ty came have come to a show and met them and all that kind of stuff. So that's amazing. But which co-signed, by the way, their song co-sign is Hot Lava Fire. See, a little, little plug right there. <sighs> um, but the song Rain is my favorite song by. It's one of my favorite songs by them. Probably my favorite. I sing it every day. But it's actually like a five second, that melody, mm-hmm. a five second clip from a solo, a bass solo by Jaco Pastorius from this 80s, from the early what? 80s, that the producer, Brian Alexander Morgan, who did all their songs. Yes, yes. He, he's, he's like a music head. He, he just pulled like this five seconds of, of a song and t- built a whole production around that five second bass solo by Jaco Pastorius. So he's, he's just playing free. It's like a free bass solo. Obviously he goes, dun, 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 dun. and he goes on to something else. And it's like a 12 minute song. And he heard that one piece and wrote out. Sometimes it's soft as a misting rain. Ugh. And that song literally sounds like rain feels like rain. It's perfectly produced. Brian Alexander Morgan is one of the best R&B producers. Dude, he's, he is a, Period. Legend to me. Legend. And doesn't gain enough respect. God, he's a genius, man, that guy. But I remember like, doing... Most people don't know that it's actually from a bass solo. Isn't that... And here's the thing. We're going to circle back. You talk about, like, I, you know, I'm white kid from Mississippi. I loved hip-hop and R&B, though, in the 90s. Like, that was, like, such a huge part of my growing up. Listening, first of all, watching the Netflix documentary on, on the history of hip-hop, was evolution it was yes i highly recommend everyone watch it twice every every, i don't care if if like hip-hop and r&b in your thing it doesn't matter you're gonna be you're gonna be enamored by this it's so well done two quest love supreme is like my favorite podcast of all time hearing and and this is where i'm going with this this is what blows my mind about early hip-hop days this is i can talk about this for hours so i gotta be really succinct but but the genius behind producers and the way that they would do exactly what you said, mm-hmm. they would listen to hours of music and go, okay, that baseline. Now that actually works because the BPM of that drum loop on that album, 10 hours ago, I listened to would actually work. So I'm going to lift both of those, mm-hmm. but now I need a keyboard. I need some keyboard lick or guitar lick that's in the key of the bass and the BPM of the drums. So I can lay it on top of that. And then I can start building myself a song that kind of intuition and work ethic and what you're saying about lifting just that baseline to go, okay, that's all I need to build a, an empire off of this baseline. It, it, it is like, cause it's different than traditional songwriting because you're oh, not sitting no. down and making up some, it's arguably maybe harder because you got limited amount of references for things to bring in. And it's like, 
you've got a color wheel that's only got so many colors. And, 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 the, and the genius of those guys, those producers, those hip hop producers was, and it, and you realize, I mean, it gives me so much joy listening to those interviews because those guys live and die by their record collections. And that's why when they'd go crate digging, they, they, you are only as good as what you know. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm of that school because I, I, that, that's how I absorb music. So what people don't know about a lot of us, you included, is that more than anything, I'm a music head. Like I know... I'm a, just like an encyclopedia of songs from church songs to classical songs to all of pop culture history, all of the genres, jazz, everything. Um, I'm just a sponge. I spend most of my time just taking more. It's, it's actually amazing. Have you ever thought about how amazing it is, how many songs you can, a brain can remember? Yes. <laughs> like, does it ever end? It's insane. Like, I know so many random things. Which makes me wonder even more why I only hear Dina Howard in my head. <laughs> <laughs> why, why of all the things your brain is like? I started playing classical at two and a half. Yeah. Only Adina stuck. Oh my gosh. I mean, that brings me so much joy. I, again, I just love that you're at the mercy of your brain. I mean, yeah, I mean, but, but I mean, it's, it's incredible how that to me, to, to me, the, to be a great songwriter is, is not to imitate. Mm. But to know as much music as possible, because then you have more crayons in the coloring box mm. or crayons that, in the box to color with rather. That, that is, that is to me. And I mean, you know, that, that's what this podcast to me is sort of subterfuge in a way about is, is how these, you know, this, this podcast, I love having people in love music. That's mm. why this is fun to talk about. Cause when I go, what are your five hot takes? It's like, Oh man, let, check this out. But, but you, you know what I'm saying? Because you gotta love music. There's gotta be a little bit of like, oh man, I was listening to this thing and I forgot this thing. How cool is this? You know, it's 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 for people that love music until you just I nail love, that. I, listen, my, I say this, especially for people gaining. You gotta love this thing, and if you don't love it like like a passion, then run like hell. Yeah, don't well, do that. You love this. So 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 okay. So another question I have for you. Yeah. What what does it feel like to be in a streak? Cause I mean, you, you've been, you've been that a few times. Like, what is that like walking in a room kind of being like, I, I don't know. I just got it. <laughs> it. It never, the funny thing is it never feels that way. Uh, uh-huh. there, there's a perception of what it must feel like to be writing hit records and how you must feel um, while the hit records are happening. And that's just never how I felt when it was happening. I was always extremely hard on myself and I was always like a, looking at the next, even while the, 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 um, the song was on the radio or was doing really well, I was like, cool, that, now that happened, what's next? Mm-hmm. Very driven, very ambitious, um, very disciplined. And so that doesn't allow, I, I wouldn't say I regret not celebrating more. I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time living on my laurels of what I had done. So, and then also, can I, I'll be honest with you, the worst thing in the world, the best thing is watching your song climb the charts and the worst thing is watching it fall. It's like watching your kid and you're like, you're teaching them how to ride a bike and you're like, and you push them up like, you got it, you got it, you go, go, go. They have it on the block. They just follow. Because uh, the thing about it is, you know, once it goes up, it has to come down. It has to. Um, and Max Martin was one of them. He was, one of them. He was like, don't, stu- don't study media base. Do not. He, he's t- actually, the, ironically, him and Luke taught me media base. 
And then we're like, but yeah, you, you should think twice about how much you want to spend on this because it's, it's an addiction. And just watching the bullets of the songs go up on the radio and watching what's ahead of, ahead of it and how much, how much it needs this week to go up is great until you're the song that's going down. Mm. Which is going to, even if it was a hundred week number one, week 101. It's relative. I mean, the feeling of music is not an accomplishment. It's a journey. Mm. So those things mean very little to me now, especially in the time we're in right now, like this time where we're all kind of like the world is upside down and we're alone and musicians are figuring out what the hell they're doing. It's proven even more to me that the charts or the, and the awards and the ones you didn't get or the ones that didn't go your way don't mean as much as music that gets you through life like now. Mm. And what songs are getting me through this and what songs am I putting out that are getting people through this? Yeah, so That's kind of, that's always been my mission even when I was too immature to say it that clearly. Um, so I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time on it. So there's a lot of, everyone else has an opinion about what I guess my streak is. And for me, I'm like, I've always felt like a dodo just trying to write a good song. But, but you spoke, which I agree with that, but, but <laughs> yeah, were there were, not moments where they're not, you said with Akon where, when he said, I'm yeah. going to cut this, you got a little hit of confidence. There had to be a little bit of a, um, you know, you're seeing these things get cut. They're getting on the radio. I'm, I'm assuming, and maybe not, maybe not. And this is what I love about, you know, Ecclesiastes in the Bible where <laughs> Solomon talks about, I've seen it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's nothing new under the sun. So it would only back this theory up. But but surely, though, there had to be a point where, you know, by your third song that's done well, you're walking in with a little more like, all right, because I know you, you are extremely confident. It's one of my favorite, favorite things about you. But, you know, as things work, you you get a little more you get a little more um, concrete in the backbone. No. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> well, it manifests itself in my songs, not in my attitude. Look at that. Well, Look at that. So the the more I artists said yes, the more daring I got with what I could write. Um, in, in that, like, I, I, I one of the things I'm most proud of of my songwriting career is that I'm multi genre. I hate mm. genres. I hate the boxes anyway. But if yep. we have to talk that way, um, I've always kept the people guessing. I. I grew up in New York City, so I never accepted the fact that I, I was a black kid, so I had to do R&B or hip hop. So I grew up listening to rock and to grunge and to heavy metal and to CCM and, and gospel and all kind of stuff. So I was I was refused to be boxed. So the more confident I got, the more I was like, oh, you like that? Okay, so wait to see my rock song. So it was like, it was it was that inward. It was never I never came. I was never flashy. I was never like I'm Claude Kelly. So now I was never. I, I, I was more professional. I felt like the more up, the higher up I got, the better I had to be. So I was early for sessions and I was more prepared. And I used the access and the, and the money to, to make sure that I could add live strings instead of fake strings. And I could mm. get the best mix engineer I wanted and never manifested itself as like a ten, temper tantrum or like a diva antics. It was very much right back to work. Like when, like for example, with Akon, he said, I'll take the song. And I was like, cool. And my immediate question was, do you have anything you want me to do? And he was like, yeah, here's a CD of tracks. And I, w I was on a flight that night, went home the next day, went to Chunking Studios in New York the next day. Cause I was like, cause to your point, I was like, man, Akon believes in me. I'm going to do this. Cool. And I, it was like five songs in the CD and I went there and I wrote all of them that night. That was all the energy. And those are the songs that ended up, two of those ended up on Whitney Houston. One ended up on Leona Lewis. I think one ended up on Akon's album. Or Dang. Because I, it manifests to, I was like, oh, really? You believe in me? Cool. I'm going to show you. You, know, you ain't seen nothing yet. That where does that, where does that, is that, is that, 
is that your mom? I mean, wh- where does that come from? Where does that sort of like, you know, resilience yeah, my, that belief? My mom, my mom has been has always been supportive of, of my music career, um, and very much um, a fiery person that told me self respect was was big in the house and believing in yourself, mm-hmm. um, and hard work, discipline. So, I've never had a I've never had a problem with believing in myself. I may have had a problem with speaking up for myself. I think we all do because it's a scary business and these are big artists and big careers and big money on the line. So it takes a second to know how to sell your song and know how to present. All that. That's no one can teach you that. You have to learn, and it's hard. But I avoid a lot of BS, a lot of trouble, um, and a lot of drama in the business by just knowing who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, if I you, you couldn't convince me to do it if I didn't want to do it. I don't. I've never been. Uh, easily led astray by peer pressure. I just kind of always knew that I, that that being Claw was good enough. Even though I'm definitely growing every day and loving myself more every day, which we all should. Even when I was a kid, I was not easily like. That's why they knew I was. Gonna do, I knew I was going to do music. I knew I had a thing for it early on. Even with if teachers, I, everyone has a couple of teachers that are terrible. Teachers who told me otherwise, I was kind of like, "Yeah, screw you, you don't know anything. I'm I'm awesome. Like, I'm going to do this." Thing. And not because not, not I fully understood who I would become, but I had this inward belief that like I have a special thing. Everyone mm-hmm. has a special thing. I I figured mine out. And the only thing that I think that makes me different is that, or or blessed, I suppose, is that. I was able to figure it out really early. Mm. God, so, that's, that's such a gift. So I knew that music was my thing. The specifics of it, I'm a late bloomer. It's like a, as a songwriter, I'm a late bloomer. But as, as a musician, as music as my thing, I knew. And I always related to people that, that, that spoke like that too. Mm. Artists or, or musicians. I, if artists talk confidently, like I do music for a living and I, and I, and I, I'm, and I'm, I stand in that. I've, I actually hate I hate the part of the business with between musicians and especially artists where it's just like, um, uh, I'm not really sure about my, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Like if you, I hope you like it. I'm like, but if we're paying to see you and you're a professional and you're signed by a major, then I want to see you say like, here's my work. Yeah. It's what I do. This is what I do. Because, because if a plumber came to your house and was that antsy, you'd be nervous. <laughs> or if a surgeon came to you, but, but music is that serious. It's, it's, it's soul work. So mm. I don't, don't tell me to let it into my into my world, into my soul. If you're not sure your recipe is good, yeah that that was that was a huge lesson for me early on in my career with live shows, especially because I was like, why are the nights that I don't feel good that I can see the crowd doesn't feel good because they're literally looking at you and you got to say to them, hey, we're gonna have a good time. I know what I'm doing, and then they go, oh, we're gonna have a good time. This is yeah, gonna be great. They're they're there to trust you. Yeah, they respond to you. They're they're completely mirroring whatever you're giving them. And then I would, and it was such a gift to realize, not that it made me better, but at least I could go like, you know why that show sucked is because I felt like I sucked. It's you all know? Thing about music is that we've built this whole business. We did leadership together and there's all this infrastructure built around it now. But in the end of the day, it's always a journey of self. That's it. It's always about um, how, how much you believe in yourself, how much you have faith in your gifts, how tapped into your spirituality, how much you understand that it's really a communication, not about your notes. Mm. You know, even if you're insecure on stage, you're better off. You're better off expressing and singing your insecurity. That's right. Than being fake about it. That never yeah. translates. Yep. Um, all right, number three. You're killing these, by the way. I am perfect yeah. segue to my number three, actually, because I'm, I'm trying to remember the stuff that I, I thought about. Hot take three. 
one of my favorite top five artists of all time is Billy Joel. Hands down, I fight over him. Like we we can we can do a duel outside over Billy Joel. Like no, I want to use that. He's he's literally the quintessential New York song singer songwriter. Um, he was a soundtrack of my childhood. Like some of those songs feel like New York as a kid to me. Um, I've seen him in concert three times. But speaking about confidence, what blows what's my hot take, but I guess is a sad take, is to hear him say even recently that he doesn't think he's a great singer and doesn't like the sound of his voice. And lots of great singers say that, but he, his voice pierces me. Ugh. And I don't like yeah. Latin male singers, but that guy is, I've never met him. I'm kind of scared too, because I feel like he, sometimes your heroes might not like you, but he is second only to maybe Michael Jackson, uh, Bob Marley, and Stevie Wonder to me. Billy Joel is way up there for me. So I, Understanding that he uh, still suffers with insecurities about his gift was the confidence, gave me the confidence to be Lewis York, to be to be an artist. Because mm. he taught me that you don't have to be obsessed or in love with your gift to understand that your gift is powerful enough to share it. Yeah. He, to me, he, he, he is, he stands, he and Paul Simon, but I would argue more Billy Joel than Paul Simon. And Stevie. Stevie fits in this world to me too. But but I think I still think Billy's got a few feet ahead of him on this. I think you are hard pressed to name a artist who ticks these boxes. Wrote the songs by himself. Mm-hmm. Had the diversity of songs. Mm-hmm. He to me st- and Paul, you can put Paul in there. I I'll, I'll yeah. give I'll give Paul that 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 Definitely Stevie. And Stevie. Yeah, I agree. But Billy yeah. even more because he wrote them by himself. Stevie's still co-writing stuff, which is all good. But I, all yeah. I'm trying to prove with Billy's gift is it was so profound that he by himself could write. And in, in this, we could talk for 30 minutes on what I'm about to start here. But New York State of Mind, she's only a woman. Allentown, she's got um, a way. She's got a way. Uh, uh, tell her about it. All of these songs, one dude wrote by him you haven't, you, haven't, yeah. you haven't even scratched the surface no that is that is literally the beginning because like pressure uh good night saigon like this guy this one dude uh, i mean moving out in restaurants captain jack my favorite one dude. Honestly. one dude one dude in the middle of, uh, in the middle of the uptown girl it's heat, and it. There are a few things you've hit a nerve with me here, as you can tell. There are a few things that make me sadder. And look, he gets his due. I'm not saying yeah. Billy Joel, but he's not. Why is he not somebody that people go? That's. I mean, he's goat status to me because, again, financially for sure, he's good. Oh my gosh! In New York, you would feel it a little more because <laughs> Billy Joel. Madison Square Garden is, is his residency venue. Yeah, he's played, I think, more than anybody. No, but it, it, yeah, for sure. But the, 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 the contract basically is like, kind of like how a third in Lindsay or a Bluebird could be for us, which is a much smaller version. All yeah, the, yeah, all yeah. He's like, whenever I feel like doing a show, they've told me they can just clear it, like any given whatever. And he can say, hey, I feel like performing my hits, my many hits. And it sells out like in five minutes. And he'll do the same thing at like Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium. Um, 
Elton John is more pop mm-hmm. culture. Billy Joel has always been a little more of an introvert and a little more, um, I would say probably tortured as an artist. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they've both been, but I think more of like a, a, a cerebral tortured soul than Elton John is. So I think he prefers to kind of hide out in Long Island somewhere where he is and kind of pop out when he wants to. Um, and I think that's probably why he's not seen as much now because in this internet age of like catalog and, and, and remember this and remember that he could be, I think he chooses not to be. So I think it's probably of his own doing, but I still think he's so well-respected. I think he's so cataloged. I, I agree. I think, I think the trick, I think the trick though with him is he's, he's got a certain, which I love about him, but he's got a little bit of, I hate this word, but people think cheesiness. Oh, yeah. like if you, you know, it, it's got a which I think is what makes him great is that he doesn't mind being heartfelt. He'll sing song, you know, because a lot of people he'll tell about it and like, dude, this song like rolling their eyes. And I'm like, first of all, like I'm pushing you off the boat. Second of all, you know, the, it, but but I think I think it, and, and it's not that he didn't respect it, but I just I'll have a conversation every now and then where that happens or somebody. Oh, he's great, but I mean, come on, you know, and they'll kind of be like, he's cheesy. It, bug, it bothers the hell out of me because he's such a poet, and even even when he's cheesy, I think he's cheesy and knows it on purpose mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think it's like there's a difference between being cheesy and because you're just trying to chase the trend and being very well aware that when you do for the longest time that i'm literally uh, uh doing doo-wop because this is how it sounded if there's a cheese to it because doo-wop is so big but also he's doing it magnificently oh it's not, it's not by accident that it's not cheese by accident even if even if you want to call it cheese it is he I am with you. I'm so glad you brought this hot take up because I, I could do I could do five hot take five offs on Billy Joel. Just on him. Yeah. And 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 the, and the thing about him is that um I have Billy Joel days where I just play him all day and I can let it go. And they all they all get to me. I think my favorite, actual favorite, favorite, favorite Billy Joel song, because I feel like it's him the most, is and so it goes. Which just feels like it's the heart of that man. Like when he's at home at a piano, like forget the fame, like forget even the the, the misrepresented cheesiness. Forget all, forget the production. Like it sounds like the brokenhearted, fragile, masterful, honest poet and singer at his best on that song. It's just he, and then and then you know before we move on, I think the thing that grieves me more than maybe anything in music. This is a, this is a, I'm coming in hot with this one, is that he hadn't written a song in 25 years or whatever it is. And doesn't want to. And doesn't want to. That he's doing he's doing, he did classical music for a bit. Yeah, which was cool. I mean, but I'm just like, no, man. And I've heard I've because I, I have spelunked this cave <laughs> of why are you not writing songs? And you know, he was on the Alec Baldwin podcast, and he's like. You know, I just don't. I don't. It's just, it sounds like it's this mix of like to your point, insecurity. He doesn't want to, but I'm like, dude. And look, it's your life. Do whatever you want. To. The business and touring and bit the business might have burned him out, which I which I get. But Lord, Ugh. come on, man. Just because now he's now it's pent up. I know you got something in there that's just like, <sighs> come on, man. Why are you not gonna just write so good? Like just anything. Just give us anything. Come anything. on. Anything. But I'm I'm I I can't tell you the love that I have for that man and and you know thankfully you know John McLaughlin my buddy's done uh, I think they did a couple shows because Billy heard his stuff and had him and this was like five years ago and he was like he's the coolest guy ever he was so fun he was so encouraging part of my uh, uh, 
I mean, I'm American Griots, Lewis York, our, our album, he's a big influence for that. For some of the things mm-hmm. you said, like there's songs that people might think are cheesy because, hey, you're a cool dude that can do whatever you want. But like there's a song on my album called Glow, for example, which is like very much like, you got that glow, dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. Got that, almost like real rock and roll, like rock and roll, rock and roll. And um, the reason I feel fearless in doing those kind of songs um, that and the song called No Regrets and all that stuff is because I grew up listening to Billy Joel and he was just, he let me know that an album could be everything you are from where you're from. Mm. It's always been difficult for me to be put in a box because I'm like, but I'm from New York and I grew up with all these things and my idols from New York incorporated everything. So he's a big part of how I formulate putting my music together and justifying why things can be so. Because well, and I think you nailed it. I mean, my my career, I, you know, the, the the reason I am as eclectic as I am is because of him and and those guys and bands that came with them. But he's a huge part of that because when I was putting together my first record, I didn't think it was weird to have a reggae song next to a acoustic ballad, exactly because because of guys like Billy Joel. Exactly, exactly. And I wish that that diversity would be more embraced again. Mm-hmm. All the genres now are suffering from. Uh, just being too close-minded. And I, I, I really mean all of them. I mean, country and R&B and hip-hop and, and pop, it's all so linear because no, everyone's afraid to experiment outside yeah. of the trend, outside of the algorithm. Countries, I mean, I, I've been here for four years now, I think, and there's many things about country music that I still think are miles ahead of everyone else because the bubble has preserved some of the quality, mm-hmm. but it's been disappointing in the last couple of years to watch it get crunched into this little algorithm box because country along with R and B have been so expressive for so long and so diverse and so funky in terms of the things you can talk about and the grooves you can find in there. I mean, I grew up listening to Brooks and Dunn. Mm. Um, I lo- Brooks and Dunn and, and the Judds mm. and, Shania Twain. I mean, a, a lots of stuff. I mean, lots of country music. I grew up, but I, I remember loving. Brooke, I bought Brooks and Dunn at Tower Records in New York City. Just to be a weirdo, and I, I'd be walking the street like, "Oh, she's not the cheating kind. She's been cheated far too many times." I loved them. God, they're great. So, so, but I mean, like that feeling, those the diversity of feeling is missing from from country too. Like it's missing from R and B. Yeah, it's it 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 is. I'm never more thrilled than when artists puts two songs in a row on a record or EP that are, have nothing to do with each other. I'm like, good. Check out our albums. Check out. I know. No, that's listen. That's why I love some. That's, that's, we're trying, we're we're trying to make that a thing again. Well, And thankfully, I think if you can make it work right now in the, in the age of playlisting, meaning, you know, most listeners now, especially younger listeners, listen to playlists, they make not albums. And so if you can make an album that sort of feels like a playlist, you, you can really strike a nerve because people are like, oh, like I'm not bored with this by the third song because it all sounds the same. Well, that's why I think the benefit of, of it now is for sure. too. That's why I'm very proud of our, our album because we didn't we defied the trends on purpose yep. to, uh, to do what we believe, but also take people on an actual journey and not right. just a one trick pony for 15 songs. Right. Uh, all right. Hot take four. Hot take four. All right. Uh, this is good. It's talking about quickly. So I would like to. All right, so he's known for his production, but one of the best vocal producers in the entire music business is Mutt Lang. 
Oh, dude. Talk to me about it. Talk to me about it. So all my hot takes stemmed from, I tell you, my, 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 uh, my mental jukebox. Mm-hmm. So one of the other songs that I always sing is Have You Ever Needed Someone So Bad by Def Leppard. Oh. Come on. I think the album was Adrenaline. Mm-hmm. I bought that CD when I was a kid because I heard them doing a let's get, let's get, let's get, let's get Sounds like, holy shit, they, they sound amazing. And so, and I knew like, I know like some of the old songs too, um, but that's when I got into them. And then that song came out and I love, listen, I am a sucker. I am bald and I'm black, but I love a hairband. All right, let me tell you, like I love a nice old school 1989, 1990, only BH1, only played hair bands back like Poison and Def Leppard and all that stuff. I yeah. love that. that. Those those power ballads, man. But if you listen to that song, and you listen to how he stacks vocals, Mutt Lang, and he makes this wall of sound with vocals. Um, we've gone away from that sound. It's gotten very urban, obviously. Like I think I think in R and B, Brandy probably is, is is and Beyonce are the last two influential vocal arranging things that people have chased, and they're amazing. Um, but it's been a long time since we've talked about some of the other people that are amazing vocal producers. And Mutt Lang, man, like the way I think he sings some of it too. So just the way he it sounds like he makes it into an instrument, and it can sound like strings or horns or just synths almost. Um, and it's in a lot of songs, but that song I sing often in my all day, and it's 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 the best example of how good he makes songs sound. I mean, I mean, he works with a lot. I mean, Brian Adams and Shania Twain. I mean, some of his stuff on Shania, the vocal arrangement on. Listen to the vocal arrangement on. Uh, it only hurts when I'm breathing. Twain, mm. and it's just these walls of counter melody coming behind her vocal. You know, one of the, one of the, I, I got on this really, uh, uh, serious, like, um, uh, Huey Lewis kick, uh, because he, he's been on a bunch of podcasts lately and I always love when those, when those people start promoting, because now you can actually listen to interviews with them. You know, James Taylor was the same thing when this last record, he was on like every podcast I love, but, but he, he to your point, Huey is talking about, do you believe in love? And he said he got sent that from Mutt, but and he, you know, he called him by his real name because he's like, that's how long. And you know, Mutt worked with them on something, but uh, he's like, that. Do you believe in love? You know, and, and you hear Mutt in that, and, and it's the wall of sound thing. It's like you know, and, oh. it, and Huey rewrote it because it was called a different thing, or whatever. But but you hear Mutt's thing in that chorus, mm-hmm. like the vocal stack attack, where mm-hmm. it's like you just have to deal with it. I mean, insane. I mean, like, he's one of those guys and you know this better than I do being in LA, but like I've, I've, you know, the joke, uh, and it's gotta be an urban legend, but like, cause when he bought his spot in Sweden or wherever it was, like there was a lake too far to the left Mm, from his studio and he had them move it. You know what I mean? That, and, and it's really just sort of antidote for, but, or an antidote to how, like I know I talked to a guy that that was telling me when he did that Maroon Five record, like he would record snare, then bass drum, then hi hat. You can and hear the, it. Oh, the, you can. The love, you can hear the love and the details, man. Oh, like, he is, yeah. Him, I mean, there's several people. Him, uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. 
uh, Babyface, of course. To an extent, David Foster, although he's a little more diverse in general. Um, but the ones I mentioned first are the reason why I write and produce the way I do. Mm-hmm. And also the reason why I love big singers, like the acts earlier, and great vocalists, because there's something to finding your musical pairing and then being that detailed about it. Like, not just this revolving door of like, okay, Monday, so-and-so's coming in, Tuesday, so-and-so's coming in, and you're just spitting out songs. Um, Max Martin is another person because he he'd write, he used to teach me like slow down. You can, you can do eight songs in a year and those eight songs are amazing that can make more money than 80 songs. And he's certainly proved that with his career. But Mutt Lang specifically with Shania and Babyface and L.A. Reid with Tony Braxton and Ronnie Jerkins with Brandy mm-hmm. and uh, Jimmy Jam Taylor's with, with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis with Janet Jackson and many other many other formations of that. Uh, that's always been how I treasured making music the most. And I've done it all the ways. I've been sent tracks. I've written four songs in a day and all, all the different industry ways. But being able to settle in with an artist, find the sound, um, perfect each part, find that wall of sound that works or whatever works for that artist is really what gets me going? That's uh, the girl band that the Shindellas that we work with. They moved here, and everyone's just like, "Well, when are you putting them out? Like, what's going on? Like, they've been here for two years, and they have an EP out." But I'm like, "Yes, they're coming out." But I'm when it's when I have the power, I do it the way that I think is the best way. So it's been like two years, two and a half years of like real art development, and they could they were when they got here, they could sing their asses off, and they're beautiful women. You know them. Um, oh yeah. But just like rehearse, blend, learn each other, learn all the parts, um, find an identity. Let's find the sound of your voices. Let's find a sound. Let's find the topics that really work. Let me learn you. Let, let you guys learn us so that you have the potential of what Mutt Lang was doing. That's, I, that's what I, that's what I'm chasing. I'm always chasing those things. Not so much the hit record, not one song, not one label, not one artist, but those kind of, partnerships those musical partnerships that create magic well and you know what to your point i I was talking to a friend the other day um about interviewing you and he was like oh he's like okay and i said do you remember at my christmas show and he's like dude i didn't finish sentence he's like oh i know exactly who those guys are when (laughs) when you guys in the shindellas thing because it made such an impact because you guys have just put yourselves to the paces for so long and you know too and i know you know this but that is something, man, I miss about the 70s, you know, and this is a random poll, but I think about Leonard Skinner and when those guys would go in and create music, you know, like, and yes, Al Cooper was producing those records, but you can read any, and he's like, they just came in and they had played in their ba- in their basement and garage for so long together. Yes, I'm producing them, but they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's such a law. Lo- I mean, and I'm not going to be like, you know, I sound like my dentures are about to fall out, but it's like, <laughs> I, I miss that. You know what I mean? But I think what you guys are doing is that it comes from that school of Mo- dude, Motown. You listen to those guys get interviewed. They were prepared. You know what I mean? They were, they were ready. And, and it's not, it's not that every, it's, it's certainly not like we're not old guys saying like, uh, it doesn't exist. It does exist, but there's this weird disconnect now where like, like, uh, for example, everyone loves Carrie Underwood. Everyone loves Beyonce. They, they come to mind right away as a, as a two to speak of. 
And there's this disconnect now between how amazing they are and the actual hard work that goes into the, like the, the detailed dedication that goes into that, even when they show it. Like, I think maybe the, the, the ease of technology has made that part, even when it's in your face, not like I, I watch, I watch Beyonce's homecoming, for example, and I see, I get excited, not because of the performance are great. Cause I know they're going to be great. I'm excited. I love the rehearsals. I love watching her cross things off her notes and cuss people out because that's really what I love. Like I love the process. I love being frustrated that I can't figure out the song or singing the song 30 times to get the right lead vocal and nitpicking the mix. I love sweating in the, in the studio. I love sweating during rehearsals. I love sound checks. I love, I love all that stuff because that stuff, the stuff that makes me know that the three minutes that you see on TV, maybe on the radio might go by, but that's the, that's the enjoyment for me. And that's the part that people are not really latching onto, even though, even though it's being shown, because we're seeing more now than ever. You're seeing every behind the scenes clip and how, how much goes into everything, but, it's become part of the content and not part of the education or the discipline. Well, that's, I mean, listening to, you know, Questlove had one of the temps who I'm forgetting his name, but it's the guy who's been. Otis, Otis. Yeah. The whole time. Anybody come to see you, Otis. Yep. That's it. And he says, he's like, tell me about like coming up in Motown. He said the same. He had a couple of Jacksons on and he's like, what was it like coming up in Motown? He's like, you don't understand the paces we got put through. I mean, we had a dance choreographer on staff. We met with every day, every day we had vocal um, instruction. We had, so it wasn't, wow, the Jackson vibe really good. It's like, no, 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 no. The temps really, no, 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 no. These guys, by the time they were performing it could yawn their way through the set. I mean, and it's the same with this, what blew my mind about um, Johnny Gill talks about coming into new edition. Mm -hmm. And he's like, these guys were, like he's like, by the time you did the show, you could literally zone out if you weren't careful. You had done it so many. That's how we are. I mean, we, we rehearse. I mean, now obviously the world's different. And it's been, there's social distancing reasons not to. But before this, we were always ready to perform. It was just a matter of how we get in there and what and what what we do, what time are we going on. It was literally old school. And I think that it's important um, not to shy away from saying it because we said we feel like we sound old because we're not old and it's not old information i feel like our our age group which is whatever you want to call it needs to speak up about that Mm -hmm. because we are the last generation i spent a lot of years saying loving motown in the 70s and even the early 80s before i was old enough to be in the business and even the 90s too saying like man i was born in the wrong era like i just wish i had i done that if i was doing this in the 70s i'd make in the i'd be making so much money and but actually we were designed for a time such as this because we actually are the bridge. Um, we are old enough to understand the, the process of A&Ring and rolling out a record and valuing songs, song order, um, power ballads, bridges, harm, like theory, um, showmanship. What you're wearing, what the cover of the album looks like, what you call the album, yeah. You call the album, showmanship. Um, sportsmanship, all that stuff that goes into this, um, but also young enough to understand that visuals matter and MTV matters and internet matters. And, 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 uh, and we've also seen enough tragic stories, major ones to not make the same mistakes twice. Mm, that's so a great we, I th- not that, not that we're 
necessarily behaving any better. But there's a different stigma now about drug use, mm. about sexuality, about freedom to express yourself, mm. about contracts, all these things that I think we've watched a lot of people die, literally die mm. over. So I'm not saying it's not happening, but um, the way that we handled, for example, <clears throat> Demi Lovato as a pop star who was fantastic and deserved to be loved through her personal issues is a direct result of our learning, our, I think, learning our mistakes from Whitney Houston mm. and Amy Winehouse mm. and Kirk Cobain, which were the ones that we knew. Like, I remember seeing Amy Winehouse early on and be like, there's a good chance she's going to die. Mm. And we all knew that. We all had those secret conversations, but kind of were complicit. Whitney Houston is the exact same thing. Kind of complicit in joking about it and not really caring for that thing. And then because of that extreme loss and the devastation of what that has, it's it's now become uncool to be that necessarily so harsh. Mm. We now, as a community, would come down on the paparazzi more than we'd come down on the artists. Mm. Or we'd applaud them going to rehab as opposed to making that the joke. So that's fascinating. We we have to understand that that's our that's our knowledge our 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 knowledge responsibility is to uphold the not not the traditions that were weren't working but the things that make music special yeah live performance singing yeah. musicianship bands rehearsals 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 knowing your music like we do um, that's what that's what's at risk of getting lost and it's we're the only ones that can do that because kids are not going to listen to. Uh, Barbara Streisand say it because to them, no disrespect, but to them, she's just an old lady that their parents or the grandparents liked who's telling them like, oh, let's go study your theory. But if you say, if I say, if Kelly Clarkson says, if Bruno Mars says, um, you love what I'm doing. I spent three weeks in rehearsals. You know what I mean? Then you love, you want to be in a band? then you have to get into a garage and, and, and suffer through playing drums and sucking for a little while until you get better or learning how to play guitar and studying soloists and learning how to actually shred or mm-hmm. and musicians say like get in, get in the shed and mm-hmm. working on that stuff. That has, that, that's part of what we know. Although we know the cool new stuff too. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's actually the, the so one of the last questions for your last hot take I wanted to ask you is, is so Lewis, you're, you're mm-hmm. in this quarter sort of, Super group duo. Group. Yeah. Where you guys, to your point, you both know that. I mean, you and you and Chuck have had so much success individually. Um, and and you said it so well, that's why it's so fun to ask this question right now is you are two guys who have had and seen those things. Mm-hmm. You're you're but you're not twenties. You know, you've you've lived some life. You're coming into this group with so much experience and so many experiences. What what is it like for the both of y'all um, being in a group? Because I can't say this enough. It's it's a that's a really unique experience for a band to be two people who have had so much individual success and are so talented, but are now not in your twenties forming a group. You know, not twenty one going okay. You know, but forming a group having spent some time yeah, yeah. in the industry. I think I think it makes it special. I think it makes it super unique and super special because um, I I can't really think of. The last time there was a two man, not even a group, but a band um, like us. I'm not sure if ever, but definitely not in the last 30 years. Right. Um, 
So there's something that's scary, but also relieving about the fact that there's nothing to compare it to. Mm. That makes it a harder journey because if, if it was just that, like, uh, you, you can say, oh, well, well, they're just doing what Usher did. So you can just put them down that lane. Then it's just a formula to follow. But like I said at the beginning, because I love music so much, I would not disrespect this art or myself or Chuck or our time by wasting the money or the energy to make a music that I think people have already heard before or that people already heard from us before. So um, it's a it's it's challenging to be an artist, period. I think yeah. we, that's, that's not a mystery. Um, it's challenging to be um, a black artist doing something different. And also not 18 because there's many, many boxes, but there's lots of boxes around quote unquote black or urban music, whatever you want to call it, about how it should look and how it and how it should be considered to be successful. Mm. But I also believe that the things that stand the test of time were never normal. Like what wow. were Prince before Prince? Mm. Yeah, that's what profound. Before Shaka Khan. And that's how, and with all due respect to people, I view us like that. I think we are that unique and that great um, in because we really we, we, we spend a lot of time thinking and doing homework and we spend more time debating and, and watching documentaries and studying than we do making music. So we know we have a message and mm-hmm. a style that's not like anyone else. So it's it's good and it's it's really, really rewarding because I'm doing the music that I've always wanted to share. And it's at the end of the day, I'm creating a body of work. And so even though people might want to hear me do grenade again, that's cool for you, but I'm the one to look back at this and see like that. I, I, I fit all these little, we talk about New York and Billy Joel. Like I, I fit all these things that are in my head, mm. all those things out to the best of my ability. So I'm having a lot of fun. Um, the hard part is to reprogram or deprogram myself from the major pop expectations of what my songs did before, because it'll steal your joy because actually what's happening is that I'm having success in a whole different way. It's not a better way or a bad way. It's a different way. There's things I'm doing now that I never did as a songwriter and there's accomplishments I've had through Lewis York that I never would have had as Claude Kelly, the songwriter. I've had number one records as Claude Kelly and I hope to have them with Lewis York, but Lewis York's performing at the Grand Ole Opry. Which is amazing. It's historic and crazy and amazing. Yes. And it's crazy for anyone to say, to have that accomplishment. It's crazy for us having moved here four years ago, um, sounding the way we sound, looking the way we look, starting when we started to get that opportunity. How did that go, by the way? We got a standing ovation. Oh, I love it! We did How Will I Feel and Teach Me a Song. And we, were, we got invited back and then Miss Corona. You, that, but, but you say, to, that I would be so proud of that. No, I am. But that's that's what I, that's what I was getting to is 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 that it's it's easy to say oh well it's not what Claude was before, but I don't want to be what Claude was before. And actually, Lewis York is and Weirdo Workshop, our company that uh, we 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 did create our own company. Not we didn't sign to a label because I wanted to have control of the creative. Um, and I was kind of pr- predicting where the world was going, and I think I'm right. Is that artists need to have more control of their art? Um, it's a harder road. It'd be easy to call up a, uh, an old friend to label and say, hey, I got this great album. Let's do all the obvious things and compromise something and make it go down. But I don't think that greatness works that way. That's not how Motown happened. That's not how Stevie happened and all those things. And I believe that we have the potential to leave that kind of legacy if we fight for our integrity. Mm-hmm. So every day, 
every day is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Every day we're, we're the first one to the student and the last ones to leave. I get up before the sun rises every day because I'm praying and meditating and thinking and writing and exercising and all that stuff. And I, I go to sleep late because it's harder work. Hmm. You're a songwriter, but you're just a part of a, you're part of a machine. So you get to send the song off and then it goes down the factory line and the mixer does and then it goes in the factory line and then Brittany's cutting the video and then, yeah, it was a hit. And this is all on us. Hmm. But it's actually the best music that we've ever done. Like when I talk about how I love Billy Joel and I love And So It Goes, those kind of songs, I, I'm talking about, those. Are the, that's the kind of feeling I'm chasing with Lewis York. It's not just, well, the, uh, Domino will work because we just did price tag. And so there's, there's a formula to it. This is about like, what does the world need? What, 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 what is, what does my adult self want to leave as a message through, through my poetry? It's much deeper. It's much more spiritual. Mm. Well, and two, don't you think, I mean, one of the things that I love about you too, is I feel like you're like me and that I want to make music for a long time. And I think, and I think to do that, you have to change the architecture of it. You have to change the scaffolding. You can't, you can't look at your career and go, it's always going to look like this for 40 years. You got to go, no, no, I got to take that down and move that, move that in. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I think, I think that if music's musicians need to be honest, I know we're talking about, but it's it's all worth it. So um, musicians need to be honest about what a musician is. Hmm. So, firstly, we've traded, and by we, I mean musicians on a whole, we've traded a lot of our excellence for capitalism, which was never promised to go along with music. Hmm. So, for example, we don't consider ourselves successful often now unless the record has gone platinum, Hmm. unless you die a billionaire, with a clothing line and some movies attached to it and all that stuff. And all that is totally fine. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like poo-pooing on that. But what I'm saying is as a profession, as a God given gift, no one ever promised that that was supposed to come with being a musician. Hmm. We don't know how much money Mozart was worth. Hmm. And he's probably the one of the most famous. We don't know. We don't know how much Beethoven got paid to do those symphonies. We don't know, you know, you know what I mean? Like we didn't know if he had a yacht and we don't know if he was, if, 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 if his house was worthy of MTV Cribs back then. And all these things that have now replaced the value that we should have been placing in ourselves. Hmm. And that's a big problem. It's also a big problem that I don't think we're honest. So I learned this from leadership. One of, one of my kind of personal takeaways, um, although I loved the program, was that I never felt we, were, we weren't really honest about what the music business really is. And actually there are a few people that are making a lot of money because it's a system, there's a system designed to make money, mm. but for musicians, it's a failed, it's a failed business. Cause if they're signing, I, I forget the number now, but if they're signing, like, let's say, I think there's like, I think they sign like something like 700 artists per year on a, on a normal year, obviously. And if you, at the end, at the end of the year, billboard and Spotify and Apple tally their numbers and only 10 to 15 artists have sold a million copies, then that's a failure. Yeah, it's a failure. 
You know what I mean? And, and then we have this thing where like the holidays come and we all take off and we take off the first couple of weeks of the year because we worked quote unquote so hard and we deserve it. And then we kind of ease back in to award season and the Grammys come and the Oscars come and then we kind of roll into spring releases and we take our time and there's money spent on studios and food and all this stuff. I'm like, but what are we actually relaxed and celebrating? <laughs> Because in the real world, if it were T-shirts, if, if, if it were T-shirts or sneakers for that matter, and we had put out 700 sneakers and only 10, and only 10 of them sold, then you'd be, that, that's, a, that's a bankrupt company. Yeah. And so when musicians, not the people that are making money off musicians, but then when the musicians realize that the system that we're all subscribing to is actually doing us a huge service, disservice as musicians, not about the money we make. Forget that, because that's that can change at a drop, a drop of a dime. But what, it, how we valued ourselves, how much I know I have, and I'm sure you have beat yourself up about your value because you compared it to things that never, never promised to us as a musician in the first place. Hmm. Then you get back to making long, longevity music and catalog stuff that you know will last the test of time. Because not all hits were defined by by Billboard. Oh, dude, and that's you want to talk about a, 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 a rabbit Joel. hole. You listen to well, with that interview where Billy Joel, again, our man, was interviewed. Uh, Alec Baldwin here talking about, and he was like, well, you know, they asked, but how big of a hit was Piano Man? He's like, I think it got into the 30s. That's exactly P- Piano exactly. Man. Exactly. Exactly. More songs than not, you were, that, that I love more. There are more songs that were that didn't go number one that we love, and we don't realize that. A lot of times, number one has to do with like trend and the year and the fashion and what's happening in the world and politics and mm-hmm. power and money and who's sleeping with you, all kind of stuff. But there's so like Piano Man is a big, is a great example that lots of songs that we really, really love were not the, the crown jewel of the year or even of that, of that decade. But that's the stuff that we've gotten too obsessed with algorithms are the new thing and trends and, and, and social media, which is crazy. Cause if you think about it, we've made these things our lives and they just, like, I've been doing music for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. And Twitter's been, I've been on Twitter for maybe nine years. Mm-hmm. And Instagram for maybe like five or six years. And now they're telling us that this thing that was just some nerdy guy's idea in his, in his dorm room probably is the determining factor on whether you have value as a musician. Yeah. Not, not if you can sit in a room with your instrument and sing a song and people not go, oh. people. Yeah. Not if you can move, like forget the fact that you made people cry, forget that, that that you're doing music that people need through their divorce or their marriage or their, mm-hmm. all that stuff, or the fear of a pandemic for that matter. Yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's, it's a good time. It's a good time to reevaluate what we're doing and also yeah. be okay with a lot of the situations that we've, we haven't allowed because I, I'm guilty of that. I, I, I haven't celebrated my wins enough because I've been focused on what I thought the wins should look like as opposed yeah. to what it's really were. And that's the thing too, don't you? I feel like some of the best advice I always get is making sure you know how you define success. Because mm-hmm. it, because, because it, I, I don't know if there's a word that changes definitions quicker in my brain than that word yeah. does. It does. We we get swept up in all all these all these fantasies, and I'm learning the older I get that like there's it's so deeply embedded. There's a documentary you should watch called it's on YouTube. It's called Hollywoodism. Oh wow. It's called Hollywoodism. It's about it's about the beginning of Hollywood, and it just talks about how deeply the programming it 
that we have is about everything, especially as entertainers and how a lot of the stuff is things that we've seen and we find comfort in doing like in your, in our mind somewhere, you're like in my mind somewhere, which is actually like, you can love Mutt Lang, for example, but in your mind, you're like, but it's not successful unless, unless it happens exactly mm-hmm. the way Mutt Lang did it. Yeah. Or sounds like that. Or it sounds exactly the way he did it, but that's not creativity. That's imitation. Yeah. And it'll make you drive you crazy. So I'm trying, I'm happier now than I was when I was writing, even though that was, I'm happy about the success of before because I know who I am mm-hmm. and I know the purpose of my music. Much yeah. um, you're preaching, man. All right, what's what's our final hot take? Hot take five. Oh Lord. My final hot take is a little personal, actually. Oh, about, come on now. About a song of mine, actually. So oh Lord. Let me let me let me let me uh, let me let me let me I have two songs. I'm gonna pick one. So this you want a funny story or you want a deep story? Which one do you want? You tell me what whatever mood you're in. So I told you I'm a late bloomer, right? Mm-hmm. So I had never partaken, partook. Is it partaken or partook? <laughs> I actually don't know. That's a good question. That's a hot take in itself. Yeah. Of, of marijuana until I was a full blown adult. I mean, everyone's been heard of it, uh, been around right, it, right? Whatever. So when we were recording our first music in New York City, um, we we're in this, this studio called MSR, and the assistant at the time was like, "She's a Southern girl." She's like, "Guess what, y'all? I got some edibles." So we're like, "Okay, whatever." And I'm not thinking about it. So these these cookies. So I eat a whole cookie, fresh baked too. Chuck eats a whole cookie, and I can't tell you what happened after that. So the next day we come back, like literally, it's I gone. Know, I don't even know how I got home because like my first my first time. But like it's hitting me like. It was probably like acid, heroin, cocaine, all combined into my brain because I had never done it. <laughs> I'm like on the I'm on the clouds. So, the, but I'm also a disciplined person. So I get home, I wake up the next morning, and I'm pissed. I'm like, "You bastard! You wasted a whole studio session. You're paying for MSR, this beautiful studio and engineer, and you took fucking drugs, and you didn't even know what you did. You wasted the whole session." So we had two days in a row. So I, we go back the day and Chuck is like saying, he's like, I can't believe we waste the whole session. So our engineer sitting there, so we're like, well, what? he also took one. So we're like, well, what do we do? He's like, I don't know. So we open up the files and there's this random file in there that says, that's titled things I should have said. So no, we're like, kidding. well, what's this? And we're like, well, what is it? He's like, I'll open it up, open up and it's a whole session. So we're like press play. And I'm not BSing you. If you listen to Masterpiece Theater Act One, our first EP, Things I Should Have Said, which we do all the time live, one of people's favorite songs, as it is, as you hear it, is exactly, mm-hmm. apparently the whole song, so stoned that we don't remember it. So we played it back and it was like listening, to, it was literally like listening to myself as if I was discovering myself. I didn't know, I didn't remember saying it, singing it, recording it. You, literally nothing. Nothing. And neither did Chuck, neither the engineer. So what was in those cookies, man? Some strong stuff. So we play the song from beginning to end. And I'm really like, (laughs) we did that. And we were so scared to touch it. We just sent it to mix. So things I said is literally one big weed brownie trip. You know, this, this is something. Okay. One more story, and then we're going to call this thing. And it's a pretty crazy, it's a pretty deep, dark song. Like, not dark, but introspective song. Yes. I was like, dude, like, what's wrong with you? You We are deep. Yeah. So I remember listening to this album. I'm not going to say it because 
whatever, but uh, when I was like 22, I'm with one of my best friends, Ed Cash, who produced my, a bunch of my records with me. And he's like, and we are just like, this album is mind blowing. Like I, I just like, you know how when you hear music, sometimes you're like, I can't, I just say it was the thick album. It was that first thick album. Oh, so good. Beautiful world. And it was just so good. I didn't know how to get in. I was like, I don't know how they did this. I don't know how they were this creative. And Ed looked at me and he said, I would bet all the money in the world that they were in another planetary orbit when they made this music. There's oh, no way that they made this. Let me ask, have you heard songs? Cause, cause when you know how to put songs together, then, then I always tell people that like, it kind of, it's a blessing, but it ruins everything. Cause you, you know, you know, the, the, yeah. the makeup, so like right. you're watching it, you're like, yeah, but that, I know what, what drums you're using, and I know that's like right. you know too much to really enjoy music the way you used to. There's a there's a couple of songs that to this day I cannot. It's like that, like I can't figure out where they started and ended. Like, what was the first idea? What did you lay down first? Did the lyrics come first? How did it end up becoming this production? Well, why is it mixed this way? Um, Human Nature by Michael Jackson is like that for oh. me. I don't understand. Like everything from the way it sounds to how he sounds on it, to the lyrics, to the arrangement, to the tempo, to the key, to the, I just don't understand what, what? Yeah. How did you do that? Like some songs I I hear and I'm like, okay, I I get that they probably had the chorus first. And this Mm -hmm. is a group that from this time, it was the eighties and these, I get these backgrounds is this reminds me of this from back then. I can, I can break it down scientifically, but some songs and that's what that's what this song for me on our album. I should have said was I, I still can't explain how we don't know how you did. No, but human nature is like the the prototype. I, I listen to it today and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. know what's going on. I don't well, know. Well, and that that's the thing because who knows what was happening then too? Because they could have been on a whole. But Ed, when Ed said that, it sort of opened my brain up to like this really sad reality where I was like, you know, there's probably so much music that was made with <laughs> under the influence of something oh my god that, that it's wonderful but it feels like cheating because like you know i i don't do those things and so i'm like, well, like that I, doesn't feel fair no but the thing about it is that it's a lie to believe that that makes it better because right the thing about it is like i listened to some of my, my songs before and i'm equally like wow like so it's not weed it, it, it's a gift Right. I hadn't, I didn't drink or smoke at all when I did part price tag or part of the USA or any of that stuff. It wasn't until, it wasn't until way after that. Cause there's also this natural, as a matter of fact, the first two songs we did for Lewis York before we got the things I should have said, like slow motion, which you heard uh-huh. uh, to- totally sober. Most songs were totally sober. There's a natural high that feels like any other high you could get. When you're te- when you're when you love music and you tap into it, that you know from the studio or from writing or performing on stage, that takes you to the same place. It's, it's yeah. the high is the high. Um, it's just it's just people get there faster or in different ways. But the high. Well, is- and that's that's what I always laugh. I'm like, man, what if I was this hit? Like you've never seen a more amazing singer guitar player. If I was like high as a kite and I made songs that everybody's like, you but have the personality. You would be. <laughs> Bonkers, like <laughs> or asleep. You'd be uncontrollable. Like you'd be bouncing off the walls. It'd be a combination of like it'd be a combination of 
Robin Williams, mm. Little Richard. <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> that is terrifying. And 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 Stephen Colbert. All oh my god! Yes, it's very like, but like literally, with with, with amazing songs, like it'd be like a lot of different genius. And I'd like, <laughs> need to sit down for a second. <laughs> I'm telling you, you, you'd be Robin. You'd be Robin Williams. Oh my gosh, dude! Thank you. I love you so much. Thank you for doing this. I can't tell you, this has been, this is exactly what I wanted to be. My favorite thing and what I was really hoping that would happen in this interview is I wanted you to preach. I wanted you to just take some moments and preach and you did that and that blessed the socks out of me. I hope, I I try to be honest because I I care. Well, I just feel like people like, I've always felt this about you. I I wish I could just send you into music colleges (laughs) because I feel like you have such great thoughts about, I wrote down a few things that you said but you just have such great thoughts about you, you, and I, this is going to sound like a selfish statement, but you are a lot like me in that I have so much respect for what we do. I, I have so much regard for music that I just don't ever want to mistreat it. Exactly. I want to honor it. And when you made that comment way early um, in this interview where you said, you know, you, if it's a better combination, they write with somebody else than write with them. And I'm like that because I'm like, I don't want, it's not about me winning. It's about music winning. And if that combo, and I love that about you. So I feel like I've turned down, I've turned down lots of work for that reason. Like like, if I didn't have what it's, if I didn't have, if I didn't think I had the best thing, then I'd rather not submit music or even try. And that drives me the most crazy now is hearing my letdown from music is not because I think the artists suck. That's right. Because the songs suck. I feel like if you loved music, then the casting would matter more. Like if you knew you were going in with Carrie Underwood, then you wouldn't just give her the record that you did f- that didn't get taken by someone. Some very rarely, sometimes that does work. But in general, I'm like, oh, Carrie, want, let me just sit for two days and think about how to make, how to potentially be the best for her now, as opposed to just recycling things. Because that right. recycling doesn't show that you have respect for, that you love um, the process. Right. Right. Dude, you're the best. Thank you for doing this. I love it. Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm super proud of you for doing this. I love, yeah. I mean, can you just hurry up and get like a, a, a late night show so I can. <laughs> It'd be the most boring. Like, I'd be like. Boring at all. I'd fall asleep halfway through the interviews. People are like, Dave, wake him up. I'm like, sorry. What or, was like, or like, or like, or like a, a midday, like a, th- a three. <laughs> <laughs> a 7 a.m. Actually, 3 p.m. During, during, during your lunch, your, your coffee break. Yes. Dude, you're the best. Thank you, man. I appreciate this. These five hot takes. Yeah.